Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings and salutations, Cycling in Alignment listeners. Today's episode is with Aaron Anderson of PTI Orthotics in Boulder and Longmont, Colorado. Aaron has been making my footbeds that I use in my shoes for about six or seven years now, and he is one of the best in the business, I can tell you. I wanted to bring him on to have a deep discussion, a detailed discussion about the differences in various orthotic options that a cyclist or a human can put in their shoes, the construction methods, and some of Aaron's philosophies about how and why an orthotic should be made. We unpack all this with a lot of detail. So if you're a foot dork like me, and you want to know more about how orthotics are made, this is your episode. Please enjoy. Thank you for making the time to come and talk oh, with me today. It's my pleasure. Right Excited. On. So let's talk about feet and footbeds and orthotics and orthoses and all those cool things. That's what I do. I'm kind of a foot geek. Yeah. Um, so my company is PTI Orthotics and Foot Resource Lab. I like to say we are a modern 3D alternative to mass-produced third-party orthotics because that's mostly what's out there. Okay. Uh, we're a, well, the, the mass-produced part is mostly what's out there. PTI is a small, independently-owned um, boutique lab that does very specialized things. We have a whole series of pathology-specific designs for the medical community. Today we're talking about cycling. We have some sport-specific and purpose-built orthotics for certain things. Everything's made in-house by me, uh, which is pretty rare. Uh, most times when somebody gets an orthotic, they go see a professional and they take an impression or a cast of their feet and say, see in three weeks and take their 500 bucks. And when it doesn't work, they're kind of up creek. Because they're outsourcing the manufacturing. Correct. Right. And they don't have the, the, the capacity at their facility to take an orthotic apart, modify it, change it, alter it. Because everything's made on site, we have everything to do what needs to be done. So I kind of got my start because of my dad. My dad ran, ortho, or not orthopedic, but he ran shoe stores, uh, grew up in Kansas. He had several shoe stores, and we moved the family out here to Colorado. My first orthotic lab, professional orthotic lab, that is, was in one of his shoe stores. And guess where that was? Boulder, right here in this exact building. Yes. Seriously? Downstairs on the ground floor. Wow. 1320 Pearl Street. <laughs> yeah. And Which I was wa walking around. Fast Labs recording studio. Literally. Yeah. I was walking around this morning for about 45 <laughs> minutes just reminiscing and okay. looking at all the changes in the buildings and the businesses and how everybody that was here then is now gone. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Except maybe Pizza Calore. They've been here all, well, so a really pizza, long time. They right? used to be a coffee shop called Chucho's which was a little Brazilian family, Miguel and his brother, Diego. Wow. Uh, they were the first espresso shop in Boulder, actually. You are creaming me right now. <laughs> on, from, I'm like, I grew up here too, uh -huh. but I have an atrocious memory. There are a few bits I can remember. Like I remember where Dots used to be and that's a local the, cafe. Rocky Mountain Records and Tapes. Yes. I yeah. remember Rocky Mountain Records and Tapes, but there are many buildings yeah. I look at and I, I sit there and think about it and I cannot recall what used to be there before mm -hmm. it was you know, the Cheesecake Factory or whatever. Right, right. That awful thing is there now. Yeah, so it was kind of neat to think about all the great people that worked for us and hmm. 
and you know time's gone by but yeah i got my start right downstairs cool um <laughs> yeah and uh, we moved off pearl street in oh my company at that time was called podorthic technologies the shoe store was called boulder shoe company mm -hmm. original right, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> uh, we moved off pearl street in 98 i think because of the rents we thought the rents were bad back then <laughs> right <laughs> and uh, we wound right. up over on uh baseline and foothills parkway by that big safeway yep and spent a few years there and my dad got tired of retail you know the hours are so great and the people are so friendly and mm. and uh so he he kind of buried that and i kept going and i started with a a mobile service i had a folding treatment table and i put a power inverter in the back of my vehicle so i could run a grinder and a heat gun and hmm. I'd take my bag of goodies and I'd go to people's homes and offices and cast their feet and bring their orthotics back a week later. And uh, wow. at the same time, started a central fabrication end of the business. So we had two ends. We'd see you know, direct patient care and then we would do central fabrication is basically wholesale. Uh -huh. So when you go to your foot doctor, your chiropractor, your PT, you know, they don't make orthotics. They take a cast and they send it to someone like me. We, yep. we sell it to them. They sell it to you. Right. So we had two ends of business there and we continued to grow that both ends until I got to where the point I was spending more time driving than I was seeing people mm. and uh, had some PT friends that would let me squat in their clinic for a while. And mm -hmm. then uh, I think it was 2004 is when I opened up my brick and mortar location here in Boulder. Still there, been in that office 16 years. Really built the, the central fab end of the business and learned a lot of what, you know, how these big labs do what they do, why they do what they do, and how there's why there's so much crap, mm -hmm. sorry, terrible orthotics out there, mm -hmm. because they cut corners. You know, right. When you're doing 10,000 pairs a month, right. things don't get individualized. So I learned a lot of, you know, like inside baseball, if you will, uh, of the industry and kept that going. And then I started to see the writing on the wall with the changes in the insurance coming, you know, 2010, 2012. And the doctors were getting paid less and less, which means they were putting pressure on the wholesale labs to make them for less and less. And, and I said to several colleagues of mine, it's going to be a race to the bottom. You know, who can make the product for the cheapest is going to get the business. I want no part of that because central fabrication, it's a numbers game. You got to do hundreds of pairs a month for a small person like me. The big labs are doing thousands, 10,000 a month. Yeah. So it's a really small profit margin and it just wasn't there. So... I walked away from that completely in 2015. Uh, that's when I opened up my second office in Longmont and never looked back. It was the best decision I ever made was to get out of Central Fab. Mm -hmm. But because of that insight into that industry, I can tell people why they, when they, when they come in, why their stuff isn't working. Right, right. Which is good to have. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I started, where I came from and where I'm at now. Okay, you mentioned that you you figured out kind of like inside baseball how things work from the inside out, but you were still running your own lab and doing handmade, bespoke, custom manufacturing. How did you how did you have that insight? Were you seeing other people's products that were brought to you and you were reverse engineering how they were made, or did you have friends that worked at the bigger labs? Or yeah, all of the above. Okay, and trade shows, conferences, symposium. Uh, you get to go to their booth, you see their product, you can yep. see what they're doing, and yep. And it, yeah, it might not be the most upfront thing, but you kind of put yourself out there as a client to see what they're offering. Right. You know, everyone does that. Yeah. It's how trade shows work, right? That's right. Yeah. You know, and you get their literature, you, you get their stuff that they hand out to their wholesale clients and you can learn very quickly what they're doing. And uh, I think this happened with you when you and I first started working together 
And John asked me how long we've known each other, and I had to guess. I'm like six, seven years longer. I honestly can't remember. I mean, I'd say it's been at least seven. Somewhere in there. Okay. Because I'm pretty sure the first year you made me footbeds was, well, let me think about this. It was the year I was racing for Horizon Organic because I remember the first race I did in your footbeds was a local criterium, the Louisville criterium. And Mm -hmm. I was racing for Horizon. So that would have been 2013. Well, so somewhere could have been 2012, but I think it was 2013. So that would be seven years. Yeah. So you were very typical of the person that comes in my door. You had a plastic grocery bag of four (laughs) or five pairs of orthotics that just weren't working. Weren't quite right. And my average person, whether it's a medical referral from the the doctors in town or high level athlete like yourself, they, they come in with a bag of stuff. And I can tell right away by looking at it, how it was made, whether they did a foam impression, whether they did a a cast or if it was, sometimes I can tell if it was done from a scan. Right. Um, And I can tell what they've done to cut corners and I can explain to them, this isn't, this isn't right. This isn't right. This isn't right. Let's, Mm. let's, let's try it one more time. Have, have faith in your bald brethren. Let me, let me try it once. (laughs) Um, And I usually get them on board. Mm. So some of the things that these big labs do this isn't the mountain I want to die on, but the, the people that know me are going to be like, Colby gave you a microphone? <laughs> I mean, oh, man. So, uh, yeah, stick foot in mouth. Um, so when these big labs are doing that kind of volume, you know, 5,000 pairs a month, 10,000 pairs a month, it's a 24-7 operation, right? Mm-hmm. And I actually wrote an article for uh, O&P Edge magazine which is Orthotics and Prosthetics magazine. It's a trade journal that goes to orthotists, prosthetists, podorthists, uh, pr- the professional community. The public doesn't see it. Mm-hmm. And actually, they contacted me to write an article, and, and I decided to write about this. And I got some nasty emails. I got a few nasty sure. phone calls. And within a week, it had blown over, and I was fine. Yeah. But what happens typically is when, when you're doing that kind of volume, you have to cookie-cutter approach. You have to streamline things. So when they send in Bill Bunyan's foot casts, they will scan the inside of that cast, or if it's foam impression, they'll scan the foam impression with a 3D scanner. And then they have a computer that runs off of a, an algorithm, and they have what's called a library system. And over the last 20 years, these labs store every finished or corrected foot model they've made, and they categorize it by arch length, arch height, arch width, and so on. Mm-hmm. And when Bill Bunyan's foot casts come in, they scan it. And the computer tells them, well, his left foot is really close to model 1722. Mm-hmm. And they pull it off a shelf. Mm-hmm. Or they, they mill it out with the CNC machine. They, they carve it out with the computer. Right. But it's not custom. Right. It's putting them in a box. It's, so a, it's many, a library system. How many, how many bins or boxes do you think they have in a given system? Oh, I mean, I've heard them brag about their library system is as big as 10,000 pairs, 20,000 pairs. Right. And it's not right. I mean, ethically to me, it's just not right. Mm. The other thing that happens is they will do customized prefabs. So if I were to go buy a suit and it's a pre-made suit and I had to have the jacket taken in and the inseam shortened, is that a custom suit? No, No, it's it's already been made and now it's being modified. It's been customized. Right. It's not custom tailored to your body. Right. It's not bespoke. So what they do is they take that cast, they scan it, and they say, well, we have a prefab that's really close. And they pull it off a shelf and they finish it and put a little custom label on it in a custom bag. Uh, The other thing they do is called mirror imaging. 
Mm. And I have the ability to, 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 do, to do this but, and the library system, but I don't. Um, but what the mirror imaging is, is they will take the lower of two arches, the shorter of two arches. So if, let's say the left foot has a shorter and lower arch than the right. Okay. Um, they will do their cast corrections or 3D editing, however you want to, to explain that. And they finish the orthotic digitally. Yeah. And then they hit a button and it mirrors it. So, so now they have the same on the right and left. An identical left and an identical right. So they're doing half the work on the computer. It takes so half the time. You've been doing this for 20 plus years. Almost 30. How many clients do you see with identical right and left feet? Zero. What? <laughs> really? <laughs> Zero. Yes, yes. Okay. But, you know, so places that dispense orthotics, that's mm. what they do. They don't make orthotics. Right. So they're limited on time. You go see the doc, you go see the chiropractor. PTs are the exception. They, they tend to spend time with people. Mm -hmm. But uh, you've got 10 minutes. And most of the time, you go in and you don't get past the front desk. The person behind the front desk says, here's your stuff. Yeah. They don't want questions like, well, how come the left arch is so much higher than the right? How come they feel so different? How come the left arch is longer than the... Yeah. They don't want to have to explain that. And yeah. what I tell people when, they, when I get those questions is, well, every foot is a fingerprint. Right. right. They're, they're all different. Okay. They're billed as custom. They pay custom prices. The insurance company's reimbursing for custom. It's, yeah. it's not exactly an ethical thing. And that's why so many orthotics don't work. If we, if we can, let's rewind a little bit and discuss some different techniques to make orthotics and the pros mm -hmm. and cons of those and the philosophies sure. of them. I've had, you know, like you said, I came to you with a big bag of stuff. And I've been through a pretty good orthotics ringer. I've done just about everything. I've had some, mm -hmm. some scans done. I've had some of those air pillow type devices where you put your foot on a sure. pillow. Familiar with those. Yeah. I've had uh, a plaster cast or otherwise known as an STS sock. Sure. So it's mm -hmm. basically like... It's a fiberglass resin. Fiberglass yep. resin sock. Yeah. So you just to paint the picture a little bit for the listeners, you, you dip this plaster sock in hot water. And then you unroll it over your foot like a condom, basically. Pretty much, yeah. It goes up over the ankle, and then you let it dry. You put That's your right. foot ostensibly in what is subtalar neutral or some sort of mm -hmm. idealized position. Mm -hmm. And then you let it dry, and then you cut it down the front, hopefully without slicing any <laughs> critical parts. Right. And then you kind of peel it off gently, and then you pour plaster into that to make a male mold, mm -hmm. right? And then Positive you, model. I yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then you would build the, the footbed based off that. But then there's all this fudge factor of accounting for the foam and, and I've had conversations with my, a guy that I work with for many years, his name is Russ Bullig. He, he ran sure. a company called Podium Footwear. Uh, I knew Russ. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and the other method that I had used with Russ was that foam crush box, right? This is pretty common also. This yep. is something you do. If you do mail order, you do a foam crush box is pretty much the only way to do it. I think I'm working on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a, it's like a shoe box filled with crushable foam and you put it on the floor and you sit in your chair and then you smash your foot into this foam and it kind of makes an impression of your foot. And you've got all these guides you can use, you know, you, you want the knee over the toe and you mm -hmm. want the, the knee at 90 degrees and the, the hip at 90 degrees yep, and the ankle yep. at 90 in theory and you want to push down with the right amount of pressure. So, but the, the issue is that all of these methods, whether you're talking about a, a, a scan pillow, an STS sock, a crush box, they're all at least semi-weighted. In some cases, depending on the manufacturer's instructions or the, the instructions sent with a casting kit, 
or depending on the philosophy of the person, you'll actually stand fully up. It depends probably mm, on mm, what the purpose of the mm. orthotic is for. No, and, no, no. <laughs> you're right? killing me. <laughs> I know, I know, yeah, right? So, yeah. and I've done and seen all of these methods. Yeah, and they defend their method until they're blue in the face because that's what they offer. Well, this is how people work, right? We've that's right. all got our belief systems. and That's right. So uh, orthotics, biomechanics, it's, it's kind of like politics and religion. You can't get anybody to agree. You get 10 <laughs> different people in a room, you get 10 different answers, right? Right, right. So a couple things you've talked about, the STS socks. Yep. Um, it's a, a good, pretty fast method. Um, compared to plaster, it's expensive. Mm. Um, the downside to STS versus plaster is plaster is goopy. Okay, you've got a plaster gauze filled with you know, gypsum plaster. Uh -huh. And you can, you know, massage and knead that into and get very intimate contact with the foot. I mean, it's it's super accurate. So you, you get do, a very detailed impression you of capture the, the veins and the You capture the skin swirls. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With STS, because it's elasticy, uh -huh. um, when you have the stretch between here and here. That's between the, the between the I'm sorry, I'm holding a model of a 3D model of a foot. Yeah. Um, so I'm pointing at the bottom of the heel and the bottom of the metatarsals. Mm -hmm. I just need a straight edge. You kind of see that gap? Yep. Okay, so as that elastic stretches, it doesn't stay, it doesn't it doesn't stay next that, to the, yeah. that gap, that void, that get, concavity. Yeah, you, you get some, some voids there. So it's not as accurate as plaster. I think it's faster, it's a lot less messy. I think where the STS really shines, this is where I use it, is casting for AFOs, uh, ankle foot orthotic. Okay. So ankle foot orthotic comes up over the ankle, about halfway up the calf. It can go up clear to behind the knee. Uh, and that's for more medical orthopedic type problems. And as a board certified podorthist, I can only do certain types of ASO, AFOs because I'm not an orthotist. Ped meaning foot and ankle. Uh, I'm a pedorthist. So STS versus plaster. Now the foam boxes, if you, if you think about that green foam that you put your artificial plants in, mm -hmm. that's kind of what it's like. In the impression boxes, it's usually pink or flesh colored or blue. Standing in them, I've had people, I've seen people put them on the floor and tell their, their patients to take a step, walk in it. Yeah. We want to capture the image or the, the, the mold of the foot in its dynamic position. Right. Good luck with that, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, or they'll have them stand and just step in it. If you're going to use a phone box, and full disclosure, I do use them occasionally because we see people of, of all ages and all abilities. Some people can't get out of the chair. Mm disability or because of age. Mm -hmm. If they can't get out of the chair, you know, depending on how far they can get out of the chair, I can do a 3D scan. If they can't get out of the chair at all, right. you're pretty much going to have to do a foam box. Um, if there's a foot that's been surgically altered and it's rigid, you know, nothing moves, mm -hmm. then we'll use a foam box because all we're going to do is accommodate that foot. Now, the issue I have with foam boxes, uh, and I've got some, some props here, to, to show you guys. And I know people in Podlandia can't see these, but... Uh, That's okay. We'll do some photos and post those in the show notes for sure. Yeah. So when we do a subtalar joint neutral position, non-weight bearing cast, that's a big mouthful, right? Right. Commonly known, as, known in the industry as a slipper cast. A slipper cast. Slipper cast. Because okay. when it comes off, it looks like a little slipper. Mm -hmm. But subtalar joint neutral position, non-weight bearing cast. Okay. Mm -hmm. So our goal there is to take the weight off of the foot capture the subtalar joint in its neutral position with the midtarsal joint in its locked position. And from there, we can capture the forefoot to rear foot position. So in a perfect textbook world, when the subtalar joint is in neutral, and that's not always vertical, sometimes it's varus, it's, it's usually varus, nine times out of 10. Okay. Um, 
the forefoot, the plane of the forefoot should be perpendicular to the heel. Right. Okay, so if you drew a, a line down the bisection of the heel and a line down the forefoot, it would make a plus sign, a nice 90-degree perpendicular angle. Right? Yep, the forefoot being the center of the first through fifth metatarsals. Is that how we can define that? From about the, let's, let's just call it the mid-tarsal joint, where we're including the, the midfoot, but yep. that mid-tarsal joint is kind of what influences the alignment of the forefoot from here forward, from the mid-tarsal joint to the end of the toes. Yep. Okay, so I'll separate that. You can see the mid-tarsal joint right there. Yep, okay. Okay. So okay. when the hind foot is vertical, yep. you like the forefoot to be perpendicular. It shouldn't be in a varus, valgus, valgus right. inverted, everted, pronated, supinated. Right. Different terms, they all kind of mean the yeah, same thing. The same thing, yeah. We could split hairs on that, but yeah, yeah. for this purpose. So the, he, the, the forefoot should be perpendicular to the heel. Mm. That's perfect case scenario. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times, when we have a vertical heel, if the forefoot were perpendicular, it'd be down here. Right. It'd be lifted so the big toe joint would be off the ground. So a forefoot varus position would, if yep. we're looking at the right foot, let's say the big toe side would be higher and the little toe side would be lower. Right. Okay. So it's sloped up this yep. direction instead of that. So with a neutral position cast, that's really the only way you can assess that, let alone capture it. With a foam box, when we press that foot into the foam box, how do we know we haven't pushed the little toe side down deeper right. than the big toe side down right. and create an artificial deformity? Well, you don't. There's you don't. no... There's well, no there's people, point. they'll take a pencil or a toothpick and poke it on the little toe or the fifth met and they'll poke it on the first met and then measure how deep it goes. Well, if, well, then you got to put the foot back in the foam, which distorts the initial impression and push it down a little more. Right. So the only way you know you're not creating an artificial deformity is to bottom the foot out. You push it all the way to the bottom of the box. Right. So if there is a frontal plane alignment issue, meaning a forefoot varus or valgus, mm -hmm. you just obliterated it. It's yeah. gone. Yeah. So just to show you, yeah. This is a neutral position, non-weight-bearing cast of a person's foot. Mm -hmm. We captured the, the alignment. So now we can measure it down to the degree and do something about it via intrinsic posting. This is the same foot, the same person. You see <laughs> the difference in geometry? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this looks like a real foot. This looks like something from the National Geographic channel from a, a Sasquatch imprint from the forest or something. I mean, that's not at all normal. So as that foot is being pushed through the foam... Yeah. That foam offers resistance and it pushes back. You've got kind of a hypermobile, loosey-goosey foot, right? So that foam... <laughs> got a good story about that. Yeah, that foam provides resistance and it pushes things where they wouldn't normally be. Right. Uh, the other thing that happens when you bottom that foot out, look at how flat that, that heel is. Yeah, it's smashed. It's yeah. the, the, the bottom aspect of the heel on this foot model is flat like a tabletop because you had to push it all the way to the bottom of the box. On a... Non-weight bearing cast, we get that round, nice round, nice round surface. Profile. So part of the purpose of a heel cup on your orthotic, yeah. is, some people will say it's to control the heel. I'm not so sure it works all that well because it's basically a, a ball and socket. Uh -huh. You got a round ball in a round heel cup. Yeah, That's like the acetabulum of the hip. Try and stop that from moving. Right, right, okay? right, right. But right. It, it influences yeah. it, right? Yeah. But the other thing it does is it centralizes and contains our own natural fat pad Yes. Under the heel, so we walk on more of our own natural cushioning. Yep. Okay. Yep. When the heel is flat, that fat pad that fat pad disperses when you step down on it, and you and lose it your you, absorb you lose shock. your you lose right. your natural cushioning, and mm -hmm. you're walking on a hard bone. And and some yes. people um, don't have much padding on the bottom of their feet, and that so, can be problematic. A few weeks ago, I took a an online course 
taught by anatomy trains and the lab coincidentally happens to just be here in Boulder. But they're a, they're a company that does live dissections of cadavers, unpreserved cadavers. Wow. And when we looked at the bottom of the foot, it's, it's just so illuminating to see the body from the inside out because you see all these things you've talked about and maybe seen in right. textbooks, but you see the actual, the flesh. And what I noticed immediately was there's just this thick, thick layer of fat, of fat, of mm -hmm. adipose on the bottom side of the foot that goes the entire length of the foot. I mean, we yeah. have padding built into our feet. That's your natural we cushioning. Yeah. We weren't designed to walk around in Nikes or mm -hmm. Adidas. We were made to just walk and... So when you, of course, when you wear squishy shoes over time, your foot becomes more and more sensitive to those things and you lose the ability eventually to walk barefoot. But yeah, to your point, I mean, that's what that fat pad in the heel is. It's there to help us absorb the shock of a foot strike. The initial yeah. phase of gait is when the heel strikes the ground, right? Mm -hmm. Walking or running, whatever. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to kind of synopsize a little bit. So what you're saying is that when the rear foot, the calcaneus is aligned in a certain reference point. I mean, this is the problem. We're talking about a human, we're talking about a foot and we can align right, that right. foot. We can rotate it, twist it. How do we know what the basis of support should be? How do we make okay, a plane so of reference? So we draw a line through, we bisect. So I'm, I'm not a fan of drawing bisection lines on the calcaneus. Okay. Um, I used to do it. Uh, but there's a couple studies out there. Uh, Dr. Kirby, I think Kevin Kirby is his name. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Kevin Kirby, a very well-known podiatrist. Uh, and he was trained in the 80s under Root, Orion, and Wheat. I mean, those guys, kind of the compendium, you know, the, the Bible of, you know, the founding biomechanics, the foot and ankle. Okay. And that stuff is still really, really relevant today. Okay. A few things I don't, I don't agree with, but and that calcaneal bisection is one of them. So what they noticed, Dr. Kirby noticed in all the studies that he did was... So we're, I'm holding a model of the calcaneus, the heel bone, and yep. Colby's looking at it from the, the back of the heel. Mm -hmm. There's not a straight line on that. It's kind of a shaped like an oblong pear. There's, it's really yeah. hard. Okay, so if you, if you wanted to get out some calipers, right, and put a dot dot, and then measure the difference, and put another dot, and then right. dot dot, measure the middle, put another dot, and then right. draw the heel. But the thing is, as somebody stands up, their skin. And soft tissue moves. moves or, and that fat it, pad moves. And so that line doesn't mean a whole lot. Right. Um, and what Dr. Kirby found was among testers, there was no reliability. They mm. all put the line in, the diff in a different spot. Yeah. So how do we find that position? So what we're referring to is subtalar joint neutral. Yes. Okay. So the subtalar joint. The unicorn of orthotics. Right. So <laughs> su subtalar joint. So the ankle bone... Well, let me back up. The, the, the bones you have, the little bony bumps on the bottoms of your leg, those are not your ankle bones. Those are the ends of your leg bones. The ankle bone right. is sandwiched between those. That's called the talus. Okay. Mm -hmm. The calcaneus is beneath it. So subtalar, beneath the talus. So that's, the calcaneus is what we would call the heel bone. Correct. Collo colloquially. Yeah. Right. So talus, calcaneus. The talus that, rests above the calcaneus. The articulation between the two is the subtalar joint. Right. Okay. Now... It's, it's important to know where the subtalar joint neutral position is, but clinically, it doesn't mean a whole lot, I don't think, anyway. Okay. It's a good language to know. So how do we get there? Uh, you put something on the table. Uh, I like to do it prone, you know, face down. Some yep. people do it supine, face up. I can't see the heel very well that way, so I like to do it face down. Right. 
Uh, and we grab the bottom of the fourth and fifth metatarsals, mm -hmm. and we can invert, evert the foot. That's your pinky toe and your next two pinky yeah, toes. A fourth and fifth toe. Yep. And we reach around the front of the ankle, mm -hmm. and using index finger and thumb, as you invert and evert that foot, you'll feel the talus feel protrude. The talus. Yep. It'll poke out medially, it'll poke out laterally. Yes. And when you can't feel it, when it's equal on both sides, some people call that subtalar neutral. Right. Uh, you can go one step further to where the talus um, articulates with the navicular. Yes. Okay. So if you rotate it one way, there's going to be kind of a bump or a gap, whether you're inverted or everted. Okay. When you're subtalar neutral, you shouldn't be able to feel the talus on either side of the ankle mortise. Talonavicular joint should be congruous, should be smooth. Mm -hmm. There shouldn't be any protrusions. So yeah. that's probably the most clinical definition you can get. Uh, there's another, I think this was in uh, Robert Donatelli's book. He's a very well-known biomechanist foot guy. Okay, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it was his book. Uh, there's a mathematical formula that you can use to get the subtalar neutral. So I was really intrigued with this years ago. And the idea is you measure your total range of motion of the subtalar joint. Okay. And then divide that by three and subtract that from your end range eversion because your, your neutral position based off of Root's model, Dr. Merton Root, one of the, the pioneers, is the neutral position is one third of the way of your total motion. So let me back up. Yeah. If we have 10 degrees of eversion and 20 oh. degrees of inversion in the subtalar joint. Uh -huh. That's a total range of motion of 30. Right. Neutral position lies one third of that. So one third of 30 is 10. Mm -hmm. Subtract that from your end range eversion, which was 10. Where do you get? You get zero. Mm -hmm. So you're neither supinated or pronated. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's, but I don't really subscribe to that yeah. because I don't think the subtalar joint has that kind of motion. Mm -hmm. So I followed that for years and when I had the, the central fab facility, I would go to doctor's offices and train them. This is how I'd like you to do the cast. This is how I'd like you to do the eval. Same thing with my PT clients. And I'd show them that. You know, we're measuring the foot, range of motion, subtalar joint, and they would all be so excited. That's exactly what I was taught. That's what I know. And yeah. everybody was on board. And yeah. Yay, thumbs up, right? It dawned on me one day, I was talking to a mentor of mine, and she made a comment. And she's much smarter than I am. And uh, she's like, that's not right. We started to talk about it, and she was... Perfectly right. So what you'll see people doing is they're moving the whole foot like this to measure subtalar joint motion, right? Yeah. That's total foot motion. People stick their foot up and they're doing this. Right. Okay? Now, if we're talking subtalar joint, the actual articulation between the heel and the talus, immobilize it's, the entire foot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just just, use, just try move. to move the, the heel. Yeah. You're going to get three, four, five degrees. Right. That's it. Right. Absolutely. You know, very, very little motion, if any. So they were using the total foot motion when they should have just been focusing on that one joint in theory. Well, so that total range of motion theory is, I don't know a whole lot of people that use it, but it's out there. Mm -hmm. um, so like I said earlier, it's important to know. So if I'm in my office and somebody calls me and you know across the country, they say, I've got a person on the table right now that has a, new, a neutral position of you know six degrees varus. And when they step down on the floor, they're uncompensated to negative three, meaning they're still on three degrees of varus. Yeah we know exactly where that foot is. So it's, it's a good way to, to communicate it. Okay. That's the whole subtalar neutral thing. The thing about subtalar neutral that I like is it's really the only way to capture the forefoot deformities, the forefoot varus, the forefoot valgus. Because if you do a foam box, you obliterate it. Because right. you, you have, to, you have right. to bottom the foot out. So when we put the rear foot in subtalar neutral, mm -hmm. then from that baseline, that's our frame of reference, then we watch and see what the mid and forefoot are doing from that point. And that's probably a function of 
bone length, connective tissue flexibility, fascial tension, plantar fascial tension, muscular development. Well, so foot there's habits, how many like leather coffins people have been wearing, <laughs> right? Is well, that, kind of. So things can of. be acquired. Some things are congenital. Yes. Um, so like a, a structural forefoot varus is something you're born with. Mm. Okay. Uh, an acquired forefoot varus can definitely happen. As the foot collapses over time, it, you know, form follows function, right? Yes. You know, mom used to say, don't cross your eyes. It'll stay that way. So, Well, fascial, fa the fascial system remodels itself according to load. So there's the, the feet are loaded, well, quite a bit. Yeah. There's right. an interesting picture. If you Google it, if you put in India, uh, shaman, arm raised or something like that, you'll see this picture of a little old guy and he's got his arm like this. Mm -hmm. And his higher calling was to never let his arm come down. And I don't know how long he's been doing this, but he's a little old man. And his arm looks like a shriveled up little tree branch. Yeah. And his hand looks like a little child's hand. His arm is so atrophied that it's just kind of wasted away. But it's stuck in that position. You, you can't pull it down. Yeah. So when yeah. people function, you know, form follows function. If you function like that long enough, you're going to take that form. Well, this is a, a hard lesson from, you know, in the 70s, 80s, people would have elbow surgery, for example, and the the advice was, don't move it, don't move it, keep it in the cast, don't move it. And mm -hmm. then people wouldn't move it for six months, nine months, then they come out of the mm -hmm. cast and then they can't move their elbow and it requires two years of PT to get the range of motion back because right. the fascia has remodeled into that fixed position, right? Same concept. Yeah, those deep tissue people, the tissue workers, the yeah. myofascial people, you know, it's not comfortable when they work on you, but that's the stuff that works, right? in my opinion. Right. I mean, I've had it done and I'm like, give me a wooden spoon to bite. I mean, you're going to kill me. It hurts so bad, but I walk out of there, I'm pain-free. So mm -hmm. yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So on the, on the 3D scans, uh, that's a whole nother end of the industry that's been corrupted. So mm -hmm. why do people do 3D scans? Well, they don't want to take the time to do a neutral position cast because it takes time. It's messy. I get it. It is messy. And from the time you get things set up, get the feet cast. If the air conditioning's on, it might take 10 minutes. Uh, and uh -huh. then instead of 15, and you got to get the area cleaned up again, get their feet cleaned up. So 3D scan, and we do a lot of 3D scanning at PTI, mm. but it's the level of quality of the scanners out there. Mm. Okay. So 10, 12 years ago, what was really big, they were called white light scanners or gray light scanners. And literally somebody figured out a way to take an office max scanner. Remember those had the white light yeah. to go yeah. back and forth had a pane of glass on top, uh -huh. literally sit in the chair and put your foot on top of it. And that white light would go back and forth. Xerox machine. Xerox, basically. Yeah. And depending on the shade of gray, because, yeah. you know, the, the further away you are from the white light, the dark, the darker. And the computer, they had an algorithm that would say, well, if it's this shade of gray, it's so many millimeters away from the glass. Yep. But it had, a, it was a level of inaccuracy of, you know, four or five millimeters. Mm -hmm. In my world, that's huge. Four or five millimeters is... Yeah, five millimeters is basically yeah. five thirty seconds of an inch. I mean, in the orthotics industry, that's not acceptable. Right. But when you're doing library systems, who cares? Right. When you're doing customized prefabbed, who cares? Mm. You know, they get people in and out. Mm. The next thing to happen were the laser scanners, where they've got a, a pane of glass, like a box with a pane of glass on it, and uh, there's this red laser that goes up and down and scans the foot. Yep. So if they put your foot plant, if they force your foot to be plantigrade, meaning the heel. The fifth and the first met are, are all on the glass. Yeah. If you've got frontal plane alignment issues in the forefoot, you just wipe right. that out. You smashed it. You it's gone. See it. Right. So there's a good yeah. way to use those in a bad way. Hold them in subtalar neutral, maybe a couple millimeters off the glass, mm -hmm. and then do the scan. Right. But you never see them do it that way. Right. Uh, another another big one that happened that hit here a few years ago. I don't want to call out any names. There's a company. They have a uh, 
a scanner. Mm-hmm. It's about the size of a tube of chapstick, uh-huh. and it fits on the front of an Apple tablet. Yep. And it was originally designed for scanning rooms and big objects and architecture. You could use it for forensics, like a crime scene. You can go and scan the entire room. You've got a 3D record of the knife on the floor and the body over here. And hmm. So it wasn't really designed for pinpoint accuracy, pinpoint precision, right? And yet that's what they're using it for. Well, people jumped all over it because right. it's fast and it's right. really, really cool to look at. It really is impressive. So I played around with it uh, with another mentor of mine. And what I determined was had an, an inaccuracy of between four and seven millimeters. So seven millimeters is a quarter of an inch. Yeah. That's just, in orthotics universe, that's huge. So I walked away from it. A lot of big labs still used it. Uh, there's been some third-party companies that have come out with a software that will kind of calibrate the scanner to their needs, mm. and it did become a lot more accurate. They just recently came out with their second version, uh, and I guess they've addressed a lot of those issues. Okay. So it's supposed to be good for closing, uh, scanning small objects up close. Yeah. So we'll see what the level of accuracy is on that. Yeah. Uh, so that industry isn't really regulated. Right. Like if you go to the store and buy some pumpkin seeds, you've got a scale, right? And you have to weigh those seeds. Those scales got to be calibrated. Right. People come around right. and check them. And if you're off, well, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything medical, like if you, like x-ray machines have to be calibrated and passed certification tests, so do MRI machines, all these things. 3D scanners, nope, if you got one, put it out there. Right. Uh, so the ones that PTI uses were built for us. Uh, our scanners are 0.5 millimeters. Mm-hmm. So I could scan the same object 10 times and it wouldn't be a variable of more than half a millimeter. I mean, that's like a business card. Definitely more accurate than a plaster cast. Uh, yep. I've got two of them I'm working with now that are 0.3. It's just kind of getting to the point where it's ridiculous. I mean, 0.3 millimeters. 0.3 millimeters is like inches don't even come that small. Yeah, I mean, it's like the, the sheet of paper, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's the 3D scanning thing. There's been a lot of stuff out there that's not quite right. But like I said, when, when they're not doing the work and they're just getting close on the fabrication end, mm. if your scanner's off a few millimeters, their, okay. their philosophy is, oh, we're doing so many thousands of pairs. You know, obviously they work for people. Their stuff works for a lot of people. They still wouldn't be in business, right? I, I mean. But it doesn't work thing, for everybody. Like, right, right. And I don't see normal feet. See, people without foot problems you, well, don't come in my door. You're <laughs> probably a bit like me where you get a, a percentage of the population that has tried more conventional means and then it didn't work for them. And mm-hmm. there probably are a lot of people go into a, you know, a Walgreens and buy a Dr. Schultz insole and put it in their foot and say, wow, that feels so much better. Mm-hmm. Can't believe I haven't had that for 10 years mm-hmm. of my life or mm-hmm. whatever. And now it's better. And then maybe they make it another decade before they go, ooh, this isn't working for me anymore. Or maybe it works forever. There are people like that. Um, When I came to see you, I distinctly remember you telling me, normally when someone has feet that are as lax as yours and as flexible as yours. I know what you're going to say. (laughs) a woman who has recently given birth. (laughs) You actually said that. Uh, That Give me a microphone. Oh, no. That made me, that made a pretty good impression on me. That was... And, that and sounds you also, like something I'd say. Yes. You also told me that, um, look, I appreciate direct, you know, I mean. I'm kind of the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you also told me this was, so we're assuming this is 2012 or 13 thereabouts. That's when you made my first pair of footbeds. You said to me, well, you know, there's a lot of, there's a big movement right now for barefoot running and people are running in minimalist shoes mm-hmm. and Vibram five fingers and sure. this. And you said to me, look, you know, you might come away from this assessment with the idea that you should or could strengthen and improve the function of your feet. And you may be able to do that to some degree, mm-hmm. but your foot congenitally is so flexible and so mobile. Your arches are so 
pronated or your, I don't know if that's the right terminology, your, your foot architecture is so pronated and your, your arches are so pliable that no amount of barefoot running and walking are ever going to give you a neutral foot in the sense that you may aspire to have. So <laughs> you weren't telling me not to do that stuff, but you were saying, I think you were saying, don't go run a marathon in five, five fingers next week or, or even go hiking in them necessarily. Like mm -hmm. if you undertake that project, do it with caution, which I appreciated that advice because I'd learned that lesson a few times as a junior where I was like, Ooh, I need to do this. I'll do a thousand of them. And then immediately injured myself. So I was probably hip to the fact that I shouldn't run out and walk the dog barefoot for yeah. this week. But the, the, uh, the pregnant lady foot analogy, that one. Well, that, that was <laughs> in regards to ligament laxity. Yes. Okay. Right. So the ligament structure in your feet is just loosey goosey, hypermobile. So ligaments, yep. you know, they, they kind of hold things together, mm -hmm. right? In place. Ligaments um, attach bone to bone, tendons attach muscle to bone. Correct. And ligaments, you're kind of stuck with what you get. Right. Okay. If you got a muscle that's weak, you go to your PT, they give you some exercises. It might contract with a little more force, creating stability off you go. Right. Ligaments don't contract. They're, they're, they're just there. If they're tight, they're tight. If they're loose, they're loose. Yep. Um, a good analogy is imagine a stack of printer paper on your desk. If it's in the wrapper and you bump it, it moves as a block. Right. The whole package moves. If you take that wrapper off, but this, that stack of 500 pages is just loosely stacked and you bump it, it fans out over your desk. Mm -hmm. Still in one piece, just very loose. Yeah. And ligaments don't really come into play until, well, they, they do. Like I said, they hold things in place. But when you've got hypermobility, it's when that joint reaches end range of motion. The ligament te becomes tensioned. That's when it becomes tensioned. And right. when it's tensioned, it's a soft, spongy hmm. ligament to start with. And you get those instability problems. Yes. So you can't, I mean, ligaments don't contract. They're just there. Hmm. They're collagen. They don't contract like muscles. So I know that a lot of the docs, you know, will do, um, prolo, uh, prolotherapy on, on damaged yep. ligaments, knees yep. and elbows and shoulders. I don't know if they're really doing it in the feet or not, mm -hmm. but you can definitely tighten things up with prolo, but mm -hmm. in the foot, I, I don't know of anybody that's doing that in, in, in the foot. So prolo, uh, is it dextrose or glucose? Um, I think it is dextrose. De de dextrose and, and water. It's like a sugar water and it yeah. creates a reaction in the ligament and it, it tightens things up. Yeah. Uh, I've had a lot of it done on my back. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've had a few clients have used it successfully for yeah uh, help treatment. Yeah, helped me a lot. Okay, um, so so yeah, on that topic, I mean, the anatomy trains course that I was referring to earlier that I took, you know, that's taught by this guy Tom Myers, and his whole message and lesson is about fascia mm -hmm. and the fascial system and how not only is fascia widely misunderstood, we're learning more and more about it, but he's one of the the leaders, if not the leader in the field, and. Something I've figured out in the last few years, you know, for, for much of my career, people complained about riding with me because I'm, I have a really low and long handlebar, I have a really very aero position on the bike. So this is how I was able to be, you know, successful on some levels as a cyclist. It's not because I had a massive VO2, I have pretty average aerobic characteristics mm -hmm. and power, and I don't have a whole truckload of strength, but I'm tenacious, which basically means I refuse to quit. And I am really low. I can ride in a really aero position. So in any kind of Peloton situation, I was recovering ostensibly at a faster rate than most of my competitors during hard efforts when I was hiding in the, in the draft. And when I was in the wind, I was doing less work relative to some of my competitors. And the assumption has always been that I'm very flexible and people assume, assign to me the 
characteristic that I must have very flexible ligaments. Mm-hmm. But I had an insight recently in one of my uh, check courses. I took a, a really simple nine point flexibility test and I scored one out of nine points. I was dreadful at it. Like I failed all of them. And I was really perplexed by this. Hmm. And I started thinking about it and looking into it. And then I took the anatomy trains course. And the conclusion I've come to is that actually in terms of ligamentous mobility, mm-hmm. I'm remarkably below average. Mm-hmm. I'm a one out of nine. Mm-hmm. But I believe my fascial flexibility and mobility is really, really high. I think I have very low muscle tone, resting muscle tone, mm-hmm. probably which relates to a lot of hormonal characteristics of me as a person. It's just the way I happen to be wired. And that low muscle tone also leads to a low tone to my fascial tissue. And that enables me to crank my stem way down and get way low in in the drops and ride that way for hours and hours on Mm -hmm. end. So there's more to, I think, global movement range of motion than there is. But you put me in a test that that isolates the ligament and looks at it in Mm -hmm. various different forms, and especially in a joint that isn't regularly used, nothing flash going on there at all. I'm not the kind well, of person who can hyperextend it, elbows or anything. Yeah, it doesn't always affect the whole body. Right. You can have, right. A, for instance, a hypermobile first ray. Yeah. The rest of the foot's fine. You can have a, yeah. a hypermobile, you know, longitudinal metarsal joint axis. That's what's responsible for the, the forefoot varus. Right. Uh, or, or valgus in that case. Right. Uh, that can be hypermobile. It doesn't always affect the whole body. Um, in, in my industry, what I see that affects the whole body that's that's troubling is the uh, Erlo-Stanlos syndrome. Tell us about that. Well, I don't know a whole lot about it other than what I have done to treat people with it. So imagine the hypermobility in your feet everywhere. Right. I mean, you hurt yourself walking down the stairs because your knee gives way. Because you just don't have any stability. Your, your ligaments are just so loose. Mm-hmm. And we usually wind up putting those people in AFOs, you know, an yeah. ankle foot orthotic. It has to come over the ankle, up the leg. We kind of use the lower leg as a, a brace or a, you'd make the... Uh, AFO is a stirrup. I'm not sure. Yeah, I get you know, yeah. orthopedists will send me somebody, and it's like, okay, well, what do we got to do to fix it? And they're miserable. It's it's a horrible condition to have. Mm. Um, but I had one lady that was in a fender bender, and somebody rear-ended her, and the vertebrae in her neck partially dislocated. They they subluxed. She's like uh, Mr. Glass. Yeah, yeah. What's the name of that movie? This is a superhero movie with Bruce Willis in it. And the bad guy is played by Samuel Jackson, and he's known as Mr. Glass because he has a congenital condition where it's slightly different, but his bones are extremely brittle. So he, if he falls down the stairs, he'll break 50 bones. Yeah, it's called Unbreakable. Mm, okay. Yes. And Bruce Willis plays the superhero, and he's this super, super strong character. It's a, it's a well-done superhero movie. Not didn't get terribly good ratings. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. But anyway. Yeah, our little guy at home, we're still at the uh, level of Incredibles. We haven't got past the cartoon superheroes yet. Do you so. ever get past the Incredibles? I mean, <laughs> it's a good one. Well, he's got the little uh, Jack-Jack Incredible pajamas. So <laughs> cool. We'll, we'll wet his hair and give him the little, you know, mohawk spike up So top. every time bedtime comes, he's running around the house being Jack-Jack. Uh, yeah, if we can get clothes on him, he goes right. feral every now and then. <laughs> wants to run around naked. So, <laughs> As any child should. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, Aaron, if you would just walk us through... There are definitely some other questions I want to ask, but mm-hmm. if you can paint the picture a bit. So let's say that a client comes to you for the first time and they they dump a pile of random footbeds on their table and maybe some of them are store-bought or shelf-bought and mm-hmm. you've got Dr. Scholl's and you've got some Superfeed and you've got some, and then they've got a custom, couple custom footbeds they've tried and maybe they don't work. Tell us about your process. What? How do you watch 
gait? How do you evaluate the foot? What do you so, look for? What do you sure. commonly see? Yeah, when folks come in, uh, we usually spend about an hour. Okay. Most places that do orthotics, like I said, they don't fabricate, they dispense. So you come in, they do 10, 15 minute eval. That includes the impression you're, you're out the door. Right. Okay. So when people come in to see me, we try to spend an hour with them. We usually do sometimes more. Uh, but yeah, we'll look at what they have, their current orthotics. And most people have three, four pairs Yeah. because they've been through the process several times. There's kind of a point where my red flag goes up. Yeah. Somebody will come in and they've literally got 15 pair, dozen pairs of custom yeah. orthotics and, and they're truly custom. And then first thing I think is, all right, all these people can't be wrong. Problem child. What's wrong with this person that you know, I'm going to get sucked into. And, right. And uh, so that does happen. But uh, yeah, so we'll look at what they have. And then uh, we do kind of a non-weight bearing evaluation. We'll get them on the table. We'll do range of motion assessments, angular measurements, you know, see how much range of motion they have. So you're uh, looking at how much the forefoot well, well so we're looking at and... uh, range of motion in the in the big toe, the yeah. first metatarsal phalangeal joint. We're looking at the mobility of the first ray. We're looking at the mobility in the, the, the mid-tarsal joint axes. There's two of those, by the way. They're both very important. Uh, the windless mechanism mm -hmm. that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, we're looking at range of motion in the ankle. We're looking at range of motion in the subtalar joint, uh, in the knee, in the hip. So we're, we're looking at a lot of things. We do okay. some basic muscle testing. So it's a very holistic perspective. You're trying to understand how the, the right because the, the well, and then we'll put them on the treadmill. You send me a lot of people. Thank you for that, by the way. You're welcome. Um, so the thing about cyclists is they are the most, and for good reason, the most skeptical, most because they're very black and white. They may want answers. They want yes or no. They hate BS. Right? Are you listening? <laughs> Are you listening to That was to my this? way of insulting Colby without ins insulting him. You're not going to insult me, man. <laughs> so they're, they're, my only they're, tribe is the human race, so very, we can bash like yeah, all we want. They're very skeptical, very analytical, yes. very very critical thinkers, very well-researched. There has to be a massive... I know... I'd well, love to see statistics on the number of engineers who are bike racers. Oh, gosh. Like, it's astounding. Well, I mean, you think about it. I mean, yeah, running a marathon's hard. Ultrathons are even harder. Cycling, yeah. I'm not going to say which one's harder, which, which one's more difficult. But you've right. got to have this, this system that works like it's supposed to, the human body. Mm. Then you mechanically attach it to a machine. That's it. That's and the then difference. You've, got, you've got one, two, three, four, both hands, both feet, yeah. and your butt. You know, yeah. five points that you're attached to this machine. Two of them you're mechanically attached. Right. That has to move in harmony. And then the bike, how many parts on a bike? How many hundreds of parts on a bike? That all has to work in unison. And they're all carbon fiber and titanium. Yeah, for you guys to, 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 to get on the podium, right? Right. So I get so many questions from you guys. They're, they're so uh, inquisitive about why are you doing this? And, and I think you did this the first time you came. I put you on the treadmill. For sure I did. I wanted to see how you walk. Yeah. And a few guys will say, I'm on the bike. What are, what are you watching me walk for? <laughs> Well, watching somebody walk, doing a basic gait analysis helps determine what foot type they are. Mm -hmm. Foot type dictates orthotic design. Mm -hmm. Okay, so depending on where their range of motion is, where their lack of range of motion is, right. is going to dictate how we design the orthotic. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we look at the shoes they're wearing, uh, whether they're wearing the right type, the right size, because, yeah. you know, in... You know, people that are wearing street shoes, I'd say eight or nine out of 10 are wearing the wrong size. Oh, yeah. Um, and nine out of nine, nine out of 10 are wearing the wrong size. Cycle you know, shoes. so there's a thing I do. You, you talked about this on one of your podcasts about foot shape. Yeah. Okay. So what I would do, I still do it, is I'll have somebody take off their shoes, 
I'll have them stand up on a sheet of notebook paper. Okay. Yep. And then I will just take a pen, hold it vertical, yeah. draw an outline of their foot. Yep. Okay. And then take the insole out of the shoe and overlay it. And there's an inch on each side overhanging that insole. That's... And they say, well, my feet are going numb. Well, here's step one. Here's step one. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, with cycling, um, the cycling shoes are quite different inside than the running shoes. The shank area can be very, so the, the, the part between the ball of the foot and the heel, the shank area can be very narrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, the heel cup's very, usually very, very narrow. When we do a cycling orthotic, we have to make the heel cup much shallower. Yep. Uh, yeah, because it takes up too much volume and then the foot doesn't sit properly in the shoe. Most cycling shoes are not really made to accommodate an orthotic. No. And what happens a lot that's really irritating with a really collapsed flat foot. Yeah. The midfoot gets really wide. Right. And on a cycling shoe, some of them, they'll bring that carbon fiber up around the sides of the yes. shoe. And that does not give. Right. So that wide, flat orthotic can't get to the bottom of the shoe, mm-hmm. which means it tilts the foot tilts one way. So we have to make the orthotic so narrow sometimes that there's not a whole lot left. So this is a really important point that I think people miss. Sometimes they have a footbed made and look, I mean, you've got to, you've got to, you know, assuming that the foot is in, is well cast or scanned or however the manufacturer does it. We're trying to make the profile of the top side of the orthotic to foot to fit the foot, mm-hmm. but the bottom side, the underside of the That's orthotic right. also has to fit the contour of the inside of the cycling shoe. And the more concavities and waves and carbon flippers and gizmos and buttons and stuff are in there on the inside of the shoe, there's no buttons, but anyway. Like the more of that <laughs> crap that's going on, the more complex the shape is, the harder it is for the footbed manufacturer to get a footbed to lay flat in there to not get distorted. Right. So when you push down on it, if it warps, if there's a void mm-hmm. or if there's too much material in one place or if the heel doesn't sit properly, then all then it changes the entire point of the footbed. That's why when we do orthotics for cyclists, I kind of get in trouble for this a lot, but I make them leave the shoes with me. You have to leave your cycling shoes with me for a week or sometimes two. Or, you know, yeah. when, I'm, During when manufacturing. I'm two or three days away from getting them finished, then drop them off. So I have to fit them you got to it. the shoe. You should have more than one pair of shoes anyway, people. <laughs> so that's probably my most common uh, tweak. That are identical, will. by the way. That are identical. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my most common adjustment for folks is yeah. it's a shoe to orthotic interface issue. Yes. The foot orthotic interface is, is, is great. Right. But how the shoe and the orthotic fit together... It's not the fact we jam this big giant thing in your shoe. It's just that it's it's a millimeter off in one spot. It's driving, it changes the driving you nuts. Right. So we just take a little bit off you're here. fighting it the whole time. Or it changes. If, if you're trying to design a footbed and you believe, in your opinion, that somebody needs a two and a half degree, four foot varus wedge, but then you put the footbed in there and it doesn't lay flat and sure. that degree changes, mm-hmm. then you've undone the entire purpose of right. the footbed. So and after, after we do cycling orthotics <laughs> for you, you have to go back and see Colby. Because it's going to change the, your fit on the bike. It's, it's going to change everything. It, hopefully, yeah. If Aaron makes them, it will. <laughs> <laughs> For the better, hopefully. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. So yeah. we got to have you leave the shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way I can fit them directly to the shoes. And i trying to think the last orthotic, the cycling orthotic I had to actually adjust. I mean, just, just make a tweak to. There haven't... I can't even think of any this year so far. I mean, mm. it's, it's pretty rare. If you leave the shoe with me, then you can pretty much get we, it we can pretty much dial it in. Yeah. Uh, the, the level of accuracy of our scanners, uh, the, the, the CAD software we're using mm. that, that we use to design the orthotic digitally uh, is that goes down to one thousandth of an inch 
uh, our CNC machining process is, again, a thousandth of an inch. It's, it's pretty ridiculous. And then when the so, client leaves your office, you give them a positive impression well, so after store, we, right? yeah, we, we take the cast of your foot, if, like at my Boulder office, I typically do, I typically cast the foot because I've only got one scanner that I'm using right now. That's at the Longmont office. You go to Longmont office, I scan your feet, Boulder office, I cast your feet. There's really no difference though, because we take the cast from the Boulder office back to the lab in Longmont and scan we scan the inside of the cast. So we still right. have that digital model. From there, we use the CAD software to what we would normally do by hand. Here yeah. I have a model, a positive model of a foot that's been intrinsically posted. So what that means is we take the model of the foot and we can reshape it. We can twist it. We can lower things. We can raise things. We can move things forward or backwards. All sorts of manipulations we can do. That's normally done by hand, but we can do that on the computer now. Mm -hmm. And that's called intrinsic posting. So therefore, when we create the positive model of the foot, Anything molded over that has that has adjustment that made into molded it. right into it. And now, once yeah. that orthotic's been molded, looking at it with a naked eye, you really can't tell what's been done to it. Right. Um, you have to be careful, though, because you don't have enough range of motion around certain joint axes. You're going to piss that foot off. Mm. Um, and sometimes we won't do any intrinsic posting at all. The foot just doesn't have the flexibility to, 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 to allow me to, to push on it to, to right. try and move things. Right. Um, Even so, if it might put the the athlete in a better position or more powerful position. Right. So what I tell, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of horror stories out there about breaking in orthotics and how it's painful. No, they, they shouldn't hurt. They shouldn't be painful. Right. Um, we're applying a force to your feet to control the foot in the limb, right? But if we're pushing so hard, your foot feels bruised and you're, or they're uncomfortable and you don't want to wear them, we're pushing too hard. You know, what you need yeah. on a paper and what you tolerate in the real world are two different things. It's kind of like the spicy menu at the Thai restaurant. You order the dish that's got four peppers on it. <laughs> Seemed like a good idea at the time, you know. But next morning. <laughs> yeah. So um, sometimes we have to make tweaks. Right. But uh, after we create that model, we send it to our CNC machine. CNC is computer numerical control. Mm -hmm. So it's a big computerized carving system, if you will. And then it actually carves out the model of your foot. Yep. And when we're done, we give you those models. Yeah. So that's another thing I don't like. You had mentioned you'd had some orthotics <laughs> made with those little vacuum pillowy things. They yes. Do. So I had mentioned foam boxes where you step into the foam box. That's like one of the really worst ways you can make an orthotic. Yeah. Uh, the next one that's not the worst, but because it does work for some people, if they're just needing some arch support, it works pretty well. But that direct molding technique, not a fan of. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll heat up some soft plasticky stuff and they'll They'll put it in this little pillow and you step your foot on it. They apply pressure and this vacuum kind of seals around it and then yeah. it holds it while the material cools. Or they'll have you stand on a, a molding pillow, if you will, and they'll heat the material up, put it under your foot, and then you stand on it. Right, right. right. Okay. So there's no positive model created. So if, if a person so, wants subsequent pairs that are identical. Not going to happen. They can't do it. So this yeah. is the advantage of having a positive model. So I yep. can come back to you a year later and say, Aaron, these ones are great, but I need another pair for my mountain bike shoes. Right. Or I need another pair for my rain bag shoes. Or now I want a pair for hiking and walking. Yeah. So how would they be different? I know you've made me footbeds for my cycling shoes. You also made me some running shoes and some from a cross-country skiing. So different materials, different methods. Yep. Uh, so I believe on your cycling orthotics. So let me back up. When we're doing our intrinsic posting, meaning we've got the scan of the foot and we're manipulating that to reshape it, if you will. Yeah. The cast is taken in a non-weight-bearing position, so we've got maximal arch height. Right. So when so, you step down, that's going to be too high. Yeah, so let me let me rewind. Just I think that's a really important point there. Mm -hmm. 
if some when when you weight the foot, the mechanics of the arch change, right? The relationship of the bones change. Yes. So when you that, so that's why when Aaron sees a client, they put he puts the the person prone on a table, which means face down. And then you bend your knee at 90 degrees and the foot's up and Aaron will manipulate the foot to put it into subtalar neutral. And that is the position you use for the scan. The com foot is completely unweighted. Correct. Right. So we can capture that neutral. So with cycling, well, actually in the orthotic, it's really important. People always focus on subtalar neutral, right? Mm. And we could talk about it all day. Nobody's going to agree. But what I think is just as important is subtalar joint geometry. What shape is that foot in? The whole foot. Yeah. When the subtalar joint's in neutral. It should be this model, not this one. So a nice curved arch. Well, so it should resemble your foot. Now, those, yeah. those weight-bearing molding systems, I get a lot of those people coming into my office because there's several people in the area that do them. And if you just need some arch support, they work for a lot of people. But for right. a lot of people, they don't. Right. And they're <laughs> sitting on my table, they're kind of shaking their head, and they kind of get short with me. Well, why are you the know-all, end-all, be-all? And I, I just ask them a simple question. I'm not that smart of a guy. I'm not saying I am a rocket scientist. I'm just telling you these are wrong. Here's why. Yeah. When you're standing, when you're weight-bearing, your foot's in the collapsed, malaligned position. Right. Why would you capture your foot in the position that's causing the problem? Why would they? Why would you make that your you starting? the foot in that The position? geometry, the arch is collapsed, the yep. subtalar joints, yep. you know, the heel is everted. Mid-tarsal joint is is inverted. Uh, it's just, mm. it's a terrible way to do it. Well, yeah, but they twist my leg to raise or lower the arch and they stuff material under my arm. Okay, well, that's not... Okay, so if something's, yeah. to, to me, if something is not accurately repeatable, I'm not too interested in it. Mm. Okay, so, for example, uh, the Olympic archers. Okay, they're shooting a bow and an arrow, right? Mm -hmm. So... If they're shooting at a target downrange and they put three arrows in that target and they're all three touching, they're right next to each other, but they're eight inches from the bullseye. Mm -hmm. That's that's a precise shot, right? Mm -hmm. But is it accurate? If they were pretty accurate, but well, not if they were aiming for the bullseye, on. if they were right. aiming for the bullseye and they were eight inches off, that's not accurate. Right. Now if they aim for the bullseye, put all three in the bullseye, and now they've got accuracy and, and precision, and that makes it repeatable. Right. So if you go into you know, whatever store and well, there's a different guy working there now, or maybe a different employee does your orthotics. Mm -hmm. They're not going to do it the same way. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's always going to be that variable. So with a positive model, uh, we can, like, I just had a lady come in, uh, this week, one of these people that's been through the process and she just ordered three more pairs. Yeah. Because we've because got her, can, we've got her models. I can yeah. duplicate it. And yeah. she's a, a princess in the P type. So, I, I can identify with yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I call, I call you guys 10 centers. You could stand on a dime and tell me if it were heads or tails, you know. And, <laughs> and we, we, like I said, we, we can repeat it. So as far as yeah. running and, and uh, okay. you know, cycling, different types of stuff. So when we're modifying that model or that scan, the magic number seems to be four millimeters of arch drop. So in the non-weight bearing position, your arch is higher than it is when you're standing, honestly. Now we want to control excessive pronation, not, right. not all pronation. Right. Pronation is, you know, the subtalar joint's kind of a torque converter, helps you adapt to uneven surfaces. Yeah. If you block all pronation, you can't do that. Yeah. Um, it, it's a shock absorber. Right, that's okay. what the arch is. Yeah. It's a so system of shock absorbers if we to block, negotiate. If we block all pronation, uh, we're, yeah. we're gonna bruise the heck out of your foot, cause blisters, things like that. 
Okay, but so, a cycling shoe is so a cycling shoe is different. Carbon fiber flipper. Right. So we we actually did, if I remember correctly, two sets of foot models for you. Because mm -hmm. I I knew who I was dealing with. <laughs> no, this the personality type. Very very rigid. Very. Uh, I, I, want, I, I, want, I want the best. I want the best. You know. And this is this is my application. High level athletes. So yeah, we typically do four millimeters of arch drop for every day, and most athletic orthotics. Mm. For your cycling shoes, I think we only did two. Mm. Okay. Um, for cycling, we're using much more rigid materials. Yes. Okay. Soft, squishy foam orthotics don't do a whole lot in a cycling shoe. And we can talk about the mechanics of, of that too. Especially um, for me being on the more flexible, either ligamentous or fascial right. end of the spectrum. Whereas you have someone who's got kind of more solid Flintstone feet, more, you know, less flexible characteristics. You probably get away with a much yeah, more flexible I... material, right? Is that... Well, is that so a general sort of typically on the hypermobile end of the spectrum? We want a stiffer material. Yeah. Um, depending on the foot, like we can get some of the really severely supinated pescavus foot types, crazy high arches. Yep. Uh, we, we have to have a material that's firm enough to control the mechanics because if you just flatten it out, you're going to walk right through it. You know, that foot is halfway to an ankle sprain sitting still. Mm. So if it's too soft and squishy, and another thing about those foot types is they're extremely rigid. They're terrible shock absorbers. So they just blast through shoes like crazy. Yep, yep. And they destroy orthotics. Mm -hmm. If you want a job, go be a tester for Nike or something. You'll get free shoes because you're just going to wear them suckers out in two or three months. And give them lots of good feedback really quickly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the orthotic has to be firm enough to control their weight. But if it's so soft that they just walk right through it and overpower mm -hmm. it, that's, that's not good. So I think we did something kind of like this for your running orthotic. It's a little, it's kind of a combination of some thermoplastics and some, some backed with foam. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, but we do a lot of all plastic orthotics for athletes, you know, runners, yeah. uh, just kind of depends on the person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I said earlier, foot tape, foot type dictates the orthotic design. Right. So, you know, being a full service lab, what do I mean by that? You know, you, you go to a place over here across town and they make one orthotic. doesn't matter if you're a 19 year old marathoner or a blue hair with a walker. Right. You get, get the same and product. I love, love the blue hairs. They're one of my favorite demographics of people. They're always early. <laughs> They're kind. Uh, they bring me cookies when the orthotics work, you know, it changed their life. They bring me Have brownies. Have you ever been paid in meatballs like no, in a I wedding singer? Uh, pasta sauce. I've, I've, yeah, but they, that, counts. Me, that counts. She brought me some pasta sauce that she made from everything awesome. she, grew, she grew in her garden. Awesome. You know? But both ends of the age spectrum, all levels of athletes, they offer one orthotic. Right. That's not Right. Right. How many bikes do you have, Colby? Oh man, you've got one for each. You've, you've got one for a specific purpose. I think I'm at right. I mean, I think I'm at eleven right now. <laughs> but the correct number of bikes is always n plus one. That's right. Really plus old one. saying. Yeah. So, yeah, you can't make the same thing for for every every. So when you work with an orthotics person or an orthotics lab. I mean, you come in my office, I've got a whole wall. There's probably 30, 40 different yes. types of orthotics, different types of materials we do. Soft, squishy foams, accommodative orthotics. We'll do some foam orthotics reinforced with plastic. We'll do high temperature thermoplastics. We can do acrylics. We'll do carbon fiber composites, fiberglass composites, uh, yep. liquid polymer gel. But I know you're not the biggest fan of working with carbon because that the carbon nasty. Does, right? yeah. It's nasty to work with. Hard to work with. So the, the material I use is actually a really thin layer of carbon fiber and then a fraction of a millimeter thick layer of polypropylene on both sides. Yeah. And when you grind polypropylene, it doesn't really make dust. It just kind of balls up. It gets real sticky. Yep. So, so it contains the dust. As it, it, that's yeah. right. So when you're grinding it, you're melting it. Right. And right. that 
carbon dust gets captured in the plastic and yeah. that's that's nice what we have here i think yep. we've got you in one of those i do yes yeah, those are great yeah works really well okay so i've got a question for you and uh please tell me if this is if you think if you agree with this or not probably we're gonna have a bunch of people at home who are gonna dork out and try to figure out <laughs> am i in subtail or neutral are my footbeds correcting me in the right way mm -hmm. right um so true or false when an athlete stands on the ground and they measure from vertical under the lateral malleolus. Okay. If that malleolus is perfectly vertical over the side of the foot, they'd be pretty close to subtalar neutral, dead on, not really close at all. You mean they're standing on top of the orthotic? No, I mean, well, just, just, just barefoot. first barefoot just to see floor, where they are. The and then they could compare and put their foot on their orthotic and see what happens. And I would... Sometimes I'll do this when I'm in the fit studio. I'll have them do like a body weight squat and watch how much change there is right. under load. Right. Uh, not a fan of putting the orthotic on the floor and having them stand on it because it's not fair to the orthotic device. The orthotic device relies on the shoe. Right. The shoe is the foundation. You're looking out of context. So you put somebody on an orthotic, typically the first thing they say is, oh, holy, holy cow, my orthotics are too narrow. You know, mm -hmm. my toes are hanging off the sides. Uh, when it's in the shoe, your toes don't hang off the sides. The, the sides of the shoe. They get smushed by the shoe that well, is too small. Oh, if it's a good shoe Not fit. the right shoe. Yeah. yeah. a good shoe fit. Right. Even a good shoe fit will con contain the foot on top of the orthotic without the toes hanging off. Yeah. Uh, but people will say, well, my arch is hanging off the side of the orthotic. Well, it doesn't in the shoe because inside the shoe. You've got it, the. You've got the wall of the yeah. shoe and it goes yeah. right up next to that wall. So right. you have to have the shoe to support the orthotic. Mm. Uh, so putting the orthotic on the floor and having them stand on it. Not a big fan of it. Put the orthotic in the shoe, lace them up tight. Yeah. And when I say tight, uh, if you can get your finger under the laces, they're too loose. Okay. So, so people snug. come in a lot. Snug. People yeah. come in a lot and they're like, man, I'm not getting any better. Pick the problem. Fasciitis, tendonitis, any kind of itis, right? Um, muscle fatigue. And there's, first thing I do is I watch how they take their shoes off and they kick them off. Right. You know, they, they smash them, the, the heel counter down, they slide their foot in. Yeah. And I'll watch them, they're just flopping around inside that shoe. Yep. And what I yep. tell them is, you know, think of the shoe and the orthotic working together as a brace. Mm. Okay, so imagine you got a wonky knee joint and we put a rigid brace on it, but it's a loose sloppy fit and that knee's flopping around in that brace. The, the it, brace is not doing its job. That's right. Yeah. So orthotic and shoe working together, they can't have that bracing effect if you're not using the upper to hold you on top of the shoe. And to do that, you have to lace the shoes snug. Right. Snug, but not super. I also have seen the opposite. People over-tighten their shoes, and then the yep. feet are falling asleep, and yep. you've got all kinds of proprioceptive issues, with and the, you can't weight the foot properly or get proper force out of it. That's one thing with the cycling shoes that makes it tough. You know, people get the, the numb, burning toes and whatnot, yeah. and the hot yeah. foot and stuff. So it's those those little boa systems, right? Yeah. So they've got these, these little wires that go across the top of the foot. So a lot of times... Um, with traditional shoes, what we can do is, like, you'll see a little bony bump here in the midfoot. Yep. So and the, which bone are you pointing to? Well, just for people, so where I see as it the, an example. Where I see it the most is the first metatarsal cuneiform joint. Yep. Okay. And the doctors would call that a, uh, a dorsal exotosis. So dorsal meaning top of the foot. Think dorsal yep. fin on a shark. Right. Exo, extra osis bone, right? So, yep. Uh, or a saddle bone deformity. And that, yep. we see it a lot with a hypermobile first ray. Is that first ray gets jammed dorsally, the bone behind it develops this bony lip from that upward pressure, right? Yeah. And when you lace your shoes over that, it hits that bump and it pinches off the circulation, pinches off the nerves. Yeah. So with shoes, the laces, what we can do, but you can't do with those boas. So right. sometimes Velcro straps are better, but we can skip those laces. 
Yes, and give that a little relief yep. right and there. And we'll have yeah. a big hole, a big void there. There's no laces on that top, yeah. that part of the foot. And yeah. I say about half the time, mm. those issues go away. Hmm. So make a cycling shoe that has laces. <laughs> So we just have to get yeah. a little more creative with the lacing. And there are there are a lot of lace shoes on the market right now. It's a yeah. thing. The other thing that's a newer development in cycling shoes is a lot of manufacturers are getting into a knit upper, which just conforms a lot more easily. They'll do mm -hmm. a knit with some are with boas, some are with laces, some are with like really um, Velcro straps have come a long way. They've kind of managed to get rid of the big D ring that would always mm -hmm. be on the medial side of the upper part of the foot. Okay can also cause the same problem, that big giant plastic or metal ring. Mm -hmm. It's just an inflexible piece and it can get hung up on a bone or a nerve mm -hmm. or a bony protuberance or whatever, or hit, you know, two bones in a joint where we want a little bit more circulation and it just smashes down. So we've, shoe, shoe uppers have come a long way, but I got to say that the design of soles is just ancient crap. To be honest, it's just crap. I'm going to just be straight up about it. Like, I mean, you tell me, Aaron, in your opinion, does why would a cycling shoe need or want heel spring, heel rise or toe spring in oh, it? Oh, because I heard you talk about that. I okay, mean, so are you talking about the heel? Yeah, being higher than the ball. If of the foot? we equalize the position well, of where the cleat mounts, which is near the metatarsal heads, right. then the toe springs up, and right. then the heels much higher as well, and that's effectively a high heel shoe. You're shortening the Achilles. You're you're well, creating an artificial arch. Yeah, you're so mildly activating the. Uh, the w w uh, windless effects. The windless, you're referring yeah, to. windless yeah. mechanism. Thank so, you. Um, I forget the name of that for some reason. Well, Sometimes. so that upward curve in the toe. Yeah. So the, the front of the shoe kind of curves up like the rail on a rocking chair. Yeah, or like a weird Dutch clog or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, so <laughs> when we do shoe modifications, we do that intentionally. Uh, well, let me back up. So we've got like I don't know, nine or ten shoe modifications that we do for people. Sometimes an orthotic is not enough to get them comfortable. So we take the shoe apart, change how it works, put it back together. Mm -hmm. um, and when we do certain problems or address certain problems, we put a lot of that toe spring into that modification to help move them forward or to help off-weight the forefoot. So that's the reason in traditional shoes is to help, to help facilitate forward momentum. Okay. So yeah. like back in the 70s and 80s, you had these big hiking boots. They called waffle stompers. Remember oh, those yeah, things? Yeah, yeah. Right? The big yeah. red laces. Uh -huh. okay? And they put this big rocker sole on it and they called it a forward thrust sole. So once you get to a certain point where you start passing over the foot, there's an apex there. It's like and the it, predecessor to the, what are the new ones? The EBTs with the oh, big uh, rocking, yeah. I mean, we're so, talking uh, four actually, inches of foam. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I don't think EBTs are made anymore. There's another company called, uh, Oh, I forget. But one of those companies, they got, it. they got their pants suit off and they, they kind of quit doing that. Skechers got nailed for that too. Oh. Well, this is because they were making medical claims. I see. That weren't substantiated. It okay. will fix this. It'll help this. Okay. But uh, so that, that curve in the, in the yeah. sole, um, you talked about that, you know, kind of activating the, the, the windless mechanism. Right, because you're the, the, the first toe. So there's a little bit of that. And mm -hmm. I can go into that more if you want. But on the heel, so just imagine, I mean, so you've got a lot of plantar flexion in that, in that pedal stroke, right? So cyclists in general, when they come in, like a lot of them that do other things like run and, and cross train and, you know, triathletes, huge, I mean, just major calf muscle problems. You get a lot of Achilles tendonitis, a lot of fasciitis, right? Uh -huh. Well, when you're on the bike and you point that foot down, your heel gets closer to the knee. So right. that shortens the calf muscle. 
Yep. Well, now you're going through that pedal stroke. You're, Just like you're wearing a high heel shoe. Well, you're you're firing that muscle in its shortened position. Yes. And the muscle says, oh, this is where he wants me to be. This is home. Right. So things just tighten up. Get tight so and short. You, you've got to stretch. You've got to do some foam rolling. We've got some creative things we've come up with over the years. To, but yeah, if you're really avid cyclist, this has to be part of your everyday routine, just like brushing your teeth. Because as soon as you get on that bike, you'll be programmed that muscle. Right. Okay. So we got to have some plantar flexion to get that, you know, the, the foot in that downward position. So just imagine if the heel and the forefoot were on the same plane. Mm-hmm. And that's a rigid shoe that's not going to flex. Imagine going through that. Well, the shoe won't flex. The ankle can, of course, right? Yeah, a little, but your heel and your forefoot are going to be in the same plane. Getting to the very bottom of that pedal stroke, I would imagine to be very difficult to do for a lot of people. Well, okay, so this gets into bike fit land, but yes, when your saddle's too high, you're absolutely right. (laughs) When your saddle's too high, then it forces. So at three o'clock, we almost always see people with a pretty level foot. It's Uh the peak of the power phase, three to four o'clock. So you've got a lot of downforce going if you're not doing something really obtuse with your pedal stroke and you're pedaling a bike as we'll say nature intended question mark. Cause nature didn't mean for us to right. pedal a bike. Nature means for us to the, the conclusion of infant development is gait. Meaning if you develop normally as a child, you learn to roll over and you're breastfed and you do all those things that ch- kids learn to do to scoot, do the butt scoot to get around and find their toys and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Then they start walking, they walk and run that the gate is the conclusion of infant development. Mm-hmm. And yep. so when you, what is gate fundamentally, it's pushing down, it's making downforce to reserve, re- resist the gravitational force of the earth so we can stand upright and walk forward. So when you push down in the pedal stroke, that results in three o'clock and four o'clock, a big downforce and mm-hmm. the foot, it's not rocket science. You just take an iPad and slow-mo and you watch people pedal and the foot's almost always horizontal at three o'clock, unless their position is way off to begin with. And when the saddle's too high at the bottom of the stroke around bottom dead center, which is uh-huh. five thirty or six o'clock, right. when the saddle's too high, they are forced to plantar flex or ballet through the bottom of the pedal stroke. So, I call it, they point the toe down right. to make it through. And if you want to drive the bottom of the pedal stroke with hamstring, you can drive a hamstring plantar flexed, but when you do, you isolate the force to only the hamstring muscle. When you keep the heel, when you put the foot in a more neutral position, mm-hmm. you can use the gastroc or the calf muscles to stabilize and support the hamstrings and fire both posterior muscles to drive through the stroke. Which do you think would be more efficient though? Having the the heel slightly higher and the forefoot slightly this lower is, or having them on the same plane. We are at the cross section of one of the most heated debates in bike fitting right okay. now. And I am firmly on the side of, I do not want people plantar flexing at the bottom of the stroke. I think it's a train wreck. So you, you guys call that ankling, right? Yes. Okay. Correct. And well, also the motion of sometimes you get people who pull up. They've been um, told that they should pull them up the, at nine o'clock. On the back and end then, of the, yeah. Of course, since there's a fulcrum near the ball of the foot, when you pull up, your foot's going to your heel's right. going to rise, your toe's going to drop, and that is ankling. The problem is that then we're, in my opinion, when you come around to 12 o'clock, we're giving up what is one of the strongest cards we can lay on the table, which is the ability to make downforce. I mean, mm-hmm. look at how human musculature is distributed in the lower leg. It is dominantly made for pushing down. I mean, glutes, quads, calves, and hamstrings are all made to generate downforce to some degree. What do we have that can kick up and pull up? We can close the knee with hamstring. We can close the hip with rec fem and psoas. And some other little tiny things like the, you add all the muscles on one side or the other, we're far better at pushing down. So stop trying to pull up at the expense of your downforce. Instead, when you enter the power phase, which for me begins at 12 o'clock with a close to flat foot, 
the sooner you do that, if your saddle's far enough back, then you can drive with quad and glute over the top at beginning at 12 and you get a far stronger, more powerful and efficient downstroke that doesn't localize fatigue to a couple of muscles. It spreads it over. This is one of so, the greatest limiting factors in cycling. When you set up a position poorly and you're, you put all the emphasis on one tiny muscle group or one set of muscles, mm -hmm. even if it's a big muscle group like quads only, mm -hmm. then when those are done, you're done. Right. right. It's a rate limiting factor. When we distribute the load over all the lower body musculature, mm -hmm. then we go far faster on the bike for, we may not go any faster at peak speed or for a short duration, but we have far more durability. Okay. Yeah. I've always thought about that, that upward part of the, of, of the stroke. How much yeah. power can you really generate? There's I been mean, quite do, a bit do, of science do, to do show that. Generate, I wouldn't expect no, them to generate a whole lot. It, they, there's this one's pretty beaten to death from my understanding that they've had cyclists with, oh yeah, why don't you pull up as hard as you can, do this, do that. And they measure the efficiency and hmm. no, it either gets worse or stays the same. Okay. So fair enough. Fair enough. pulling, so clip, so cycling shoes are about making a rigid lever so we can effectively apply more downforce. Mm -hmm. And they're about when you're sprinting out of the saddle, in that instance, you will apply significant upward force to the pedals. And that has to do with the fact that you come out of the saddle, come forward so you can rock the bike the saddle can move behind your butt back and forth laterally as you pull on the bars to counterweight with more upper body force. That changes the pedaling dynamics completely. But seated, pulling up hard at nine o'clock, I'll just say it point blank, it's the wrong way to pedal a bike. Okay. A suboptimal way to generate. Well, I was power. telling John, I'm the guy that rides around the neighborhood with our three-year-old in a bike trailer. So No, there's no wrong way to do that. <laughs> well, so I usually wind up at Left Hand Brewery, so <laughs> going for a bike ride. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so full disclaimer, there are, I don't know if any bike fitters listen to this podcast, there might be a few out there, but not everyone will agree with me in that point at all. Okay. And well, yeah, I just had a hard so, time wrapping my head around, I mean, the, the strain it would put on the posterior musculature to get that heel down to that level. Saddle has to be low enough. Then you can drive, okay. you want to well, drive. You're the bike fit guy. Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah, exactly. No, you're, you're right. When the saddle's too high, what happens is the, the, as the foot travels down to bottom dead center, about 530, it loses tension in the hamstring. It kind of freaks out and you can mm -hmm. see the acceleration of the hamstring. If you're looking at the right place in the right video, mm -hmm. you can see it light up and try to maintain control and drive through the bottom. And it just goes, wow, it loses it. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the determining factors I use when I'm setting, assessing saddle height. The confounding variables can be that if somebody just has insanely tight hamstrings and that they actually can drive through the bottom. Okay. But you still see this flash of acceleration that happens, you know, air acceleration, sort of being the knee sort of pops back and you see the hamstring light up, that can be kind of a confounding variable in figuring out that saddle height. But that's, yeah. Have you seen the uh, cycling orthotics where they try to mold the orthotic to your foot when it's on the pedal? Yes. Uh, yeah, there are a couple of people who use that method. They they post they use the posting on the pedal mm -hmm. to determine, you know, they use a laser on the knee kind of thing. And, right, right. I mean, I can see the... I can see the logic in that, but again, that's a semi-weighted position. And yeah. based on your philosophy, that would, that yeah, would the, change the relationship of the foot and the bones yep. under load. And that's not desirable. I mean, I can, I'll just tell people point blank, like, you know, I've been in the sport 30 years. I've ridden a lot of custom footbeds, a lot of orthotics from different manufacturers. Some were better, some were worse, some were complete disasters. I mean, I'm that guy who I tried to change shoes one year. I think it was 99. I had been riding in a pair of modified CDs that had the soles ripped off. We put lamps and soles onto a CD upper because I was sponsored by CD. And then I had a custom footbed made by Russ Bolig, I believe. Uh -huh. But then we also started changing the upper on the CDs because it was too, wasn't holding my foot correctly. So we 
took off the bottom strap and sewed on. He had some weird shark skin strap he sewed on there. Huh. And then we did all this other stuff. I mean, these, I wish I actually would have kept him because I cut holes in them and stuff. Like these should be in the Colby Pierce Museum. Shoe Princess Archive <laughs> Museum. They were insane, but now they're in a dumpster somewhere. So I had no idea that this was going to be the path. But anyway, like these shoes were just, people look at them and just kind of, they wouldn't even say anything. They just sort of cock their head and be like, what? But I, those things finally died. I think after three and a half years of racing, I had to change shoes. And I also changed footbeds at the same time. And I went like a bag of rocks on the bike for huh. about three months. I was terrible. I was terrible. And everyone was like, what's wrong with you? I was like, I had to change shoes. Why'd you change shoes mid-season? Literally the other ones were cracking in half. Like the sole mm. was just dead. And this is not, back then you couldn't just take carbon shoes to a, person and have them fix them like you could now so anyway fast forward to 2013 i believe it was aaron you made me my first pair of footbeds i put them in the shoes you were the only person i'd ever been to who had used that method i'd used all the other ones we've talked about and listed but you used your method which was a prone laser cast of the foot in subtalar neutral you gave me a footbed with i believe a three degree foot foot varus which was more than i'd ever had in the four right. foot and I rode him for a couple of days and went, wow, everything just feels right. And we mm -hmm. talked about it and you said, yeah, I said, I'm racing this weekend. I probably shouldn't use these, right? And you said, yeah, probably not. I said, well, I'll play with them a little bit and ride them a few times. By the time the weekend came, I was like, forget it, I'm in. And I <laughs> raced them. And this criterium is sort of like, it's a little bit oh, of one good. of those races that is sort of a bane of my own little racing existence. It's got this like a really, really long uphill gradual sprint, like 5% grade for about it's like a long sprint from the corner, maybe 35, 40 seconds of just continual mm -hmm. effort. And this is the kind of sprint that I, it's, it's a type of race that doesn't suit me off the couch. I could do well in it, but only if everything's gone well for several months and I'm really fit and I'm injury free and then I can do okay. And I just remember going to the line in that race, sprinting on those footbeds and just going, my knee hasn't, normally I get this kind of medial knee in the VMO mm -hmm. thing that would flare up. Yep. Like, it's not there. I, I'm right. just going. I'm still going and I'm still able to make power. I'm still making power. Yeah. I'm still going. My legs haven't, my quads haven't seized. Nothing's locked up. Nothing's. And I realized at that moment that it had extended. I don't think, I didn't win the race, but I was top 10, I believe, which for the type of form and fitness I had at that point in the year, I was very happy with. But I was just so impressed. I crossed the line and went, wow, these things are on the money. Well, like I can just tell they're working. Brought the ground up to the foot. You don't have to reach down. For yes. It. So a good analogy I like to use. Is, oh, that's such a good way to put it. So you know the old-fashioned cartoons, Tom and Jerry, Roadrunner, and yeah. when they run, and their, their feet spin, they don't go anywhere. Right. So it's like your first couple steps when you're trying to run on a really deep, soft, sandy beach. Yeah. Those first you're two steps are worthless. into the sand. You gotta, you have to get all that collapse and get find a hard spot in the sand before you get that lever for propulsion. So, yes. When we bring the ground up to the foot, lock the mid-tarsal joint, which is very important to the windless effect, mm -hmm. and yep. keep the, the rear foot as neutral as you can, you get that rigid lever yeah. for propulsion. Yeah. And, you know, you don't get the bike fit problems like your knee crashing into the top tube and pronation, and the, pro, the, the hot foot and, you know, all, all the stuff that goes along with it. Right. So right. Um, it's like a lot it's of the excessive pronation, I'll say. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of the high level runners, same way, you know, it's, mm. the, most of those high level runners are forefoot strikers. Of course. It's because you're in constant propulsion, right? Well, cycling's basically a four-foot sport too because the axle's near the ball. The you're foot. in propulsion the whole time. So it's people, modified gait. We've taken the heel strike out of cycling. There's no heel strike in cycling. Yeah, there's no heel strike. There's no uh, midfoot, really. The traditional really gait except, cycle. Except for whatever tension we are giving to the arch via 
the footbed. Yeah. So if we if we put a a foot in a foot in a cycling shoe, which is basically a flat piece of carbon, mm-hmm. and there's a void between the medial arch and that carbon. Now you pedal. What what proprioceptive input are you going to have? I mean, there's two there are well, two functions of a footbed, right? One is mechanically to support the foot and hold it in place. The other is to proprioceptively help the muscles fire and be active. So with cycling, correct? Or yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, w- with cycling, we've got a couple goals with with the custom orthotics. The first is what I call a total contact fit. Mm-hmm. We want a very close, very intimate fit interface between that orthotic and your foot. Because when you have movement, if your foot has to collapse before the orthotic catches you, that's power lost. Right. Right. So, and it's also friction mm-hmm. and chafing, right? Eventually so, you're going to cause um, fascial tissue to respond. You're going to, oh, you could get chafing on the skin, you get blisters, you get, right? Yeah. Hot foot, so, hot foot would be probably a really common outcome for that. Something I'm going to, I got to remind it to tell you here. I just, just wrote it down. Yep. Um, Notes. Yeah. So we want a very close, intimate, full contact fit. Mm-hmm. that gives us immediate power transfer. There's nothing lost. Okay. So a lot of times we'll lower the arch a little bit less for a high level cyclist like yourself than we would for a runner. Right. So you wouldn't want to move those into your running shoes. You could bruise your arch, get a blister, right. uh, maybe worst case scenario. Right. Um, and we want a, a rigid lever arm for propulsion, you know, for, for that downward pedal stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the ways we do that is, you know, and that goes, what I'm going to say goes back to uh, these foam impressions. Okay. And you're talking about the foam crush box, the, the foam. Yeah. Foam okay. stomp okay. boxes, crush boxes. Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> the mid tarsal joint, which I, I showed earlier is really important because with cycling, I kind of apply this, this theory called the, the all or nothing theory of triplanar motion. Yes. Okay. So pronation is, is a triplanar motion. Tell so us about even if tell us about pronation or okay. about triplanar motion. Excuse me. So if you're sitting in the even if you're sitting in the chair, you can do this. So if you evert your heel, so pronation is a combination of three movements. So evert your heel. Tell it, us tell us that what that means. So please. the bottom of your heel points away from the center of the body. Yep. Okay. So if you're using your right foot, your bottom of your right heel is going to point out to the right. Yep. It's going to kind of rotate away. It's going to like your center line. collapse in towards the center of of the body. So if you Evert your heel and then abduct, AB, abduct the foot. Yep. And now dorsiflex the foot. Yep. That's a flat pronated foot. Right. Now imagine standing on that. Yes. <laughs> okay. Imagine pedaling a bike with that. It's not an inefficient lever arm at all. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other side, you've got the supinated foot, which would you would invert your heel. So you would tilt your foot in a way to where the bottom of the foot points towards the center. And then you would AD, adduct your forefoot, so that yep. points toward the center, and now plantar flex your ankle. Point the toes down, point away, the toes from down. away from you. Point the toes down. You've got a really high arched foot. That foot's halfway yes. to an ankle sprain sitting still. So yes. the all or nothing theory in triplanar motion is if you block one of those, the other two can't happen. Ah. Okay. And it's a theory, but okay. and I think it's a static theory. If you block it in the right way, right? Well, so if try to... Um, we're talking about posting under the navicular, basically. Well, right? or no? Well, try to abduct yeah. your foot yeah. without everting your heel. Can't do it. <laughs> Colby can see the smoke coming out of his ears. <laughs> I'm, I'm playing with my foot. I'm playing with my foot. I mean, uh, right? I suppose it depends on. 
So the theory like, is if, if we put a, yeah, medial, okay. a, 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 a medial wedge, like your orthopods would call it a medial wedge, your, yes. your podiatrist, orthotic guys call it a varus wedge. So a varus wedge pushes the foot into varus. Yes. A valgus wedge pushes the foot into, into valgus. Right. So if we put a varus wedge under that heel, you can't abduct the foot. You can't dorsiflex. I mean, that, that's the theory, right? Mm. So with cycling, we're not going through a complete gait cycle. We have a, a forefoot loading, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, but there's no heel strike and there's no real push-off. Right. So with right. push-off, that comes back to the uh, windless effect, okay? And the foam boxes. So, and this is another reason why these foam boxes are so popular now is there was this podiatric surgeon uh, and a chiropractor, happened to be both, 10, 12 years ago, decided to start a company, uh, a wholesale photo orthotic lab. It's okay. going to be going to be nationwide. Okay, so they're going to be making orthotics for everybody. Being a chiropractor, he knew the ins and the outs of chiropractic and podiatry. And if you've ever been to the chiropractor, I've got a couple of buddies of mine that are chiropractors, and they don't do orthotics because they know they can't really dedicate enough time to do it correctly. You're lucky if you get 10 minutes with them. You know, you go in, they crack this, they snap that, and they twist yeah. you and they bend you, and then they're off to the next patient. Yeah. So this guy wanted to go after chiropractors as a market. So they don't have time. They don't want to do a non-weight bearing cast. You know, at the time the scanners weren't really around, but they're still doing the, the foam box impressions because it's cheap and it's fast. Yeah. And I have to say that this was done intentionally because he's a very smart guy. He's a trained podiatric surgeon. He knows mechanics, he knows biomechanics, the foot and ankle. So to do what he's, what do what he did, what I'm about to explain had to be done on, done on purpose because he's not stupid. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to name any names, but because of who he was, there was a magazine back then called Biomechanics Magazine, and it was a trade journal for orthotists, prosthetists, podorthists, PTs, anybody in the lower extremity world. It yeah. goes out to all the professionals. Yeah. And uh, they're always looking for content, right? So he wrote an article, and they were happy to have it. And in that article, he used it to bash uh, subtalar joint neutral position casting because part of neutral position casting is you have to pronate the forefoot upon the hind foot to get to that, to get to that neutral position. And he says, why would you ever want to pronate anything? Pronation is what causes all these problems. Pronation is what drives all these pathologies that we see coming He's in our demonizing door. Demonizing pronation. Yeah. Well, okay. a very specific kind of pronation. Okay. A, pr a pro pronatory twist of the forefoot upon the hind foot. Okay. But it's that word pronation. Yeah. Okay. Bad. All, all pronation, bad. That's what we're told, right? Right. And he used that to promote phone box impressions. Mm. Well, overnight, well, not overnight, but very, very quickly, he had people from all over the country wanting to do business with him because you're telling me I can don't have to spend 15 minutes to do a cast. I can literally do a minute or two doing a foam impression and make somebody a $500 orthotic. Right. It's a cash flow. It's right. an income right, stream. Right, right, right. I don't have to worry about whether they're neutral or not. Stop, stop. That doesn't matter now. Yeah. yeah. So he mm. had to have done that on purpose mm. for the business model. Right. Because what we're referring to, when we say pronatory twist of the forefoot, and this is really important. Okay. So you got somebody sitting on the table and they're, they're just sitting on the edge of the table and their feet are dangling. What position are their forefoot in? Well, most of the time. Yeah. Most of the time a various position. They're just hanging in space. The big toe side's higher than the little toe side. Yes. Okay. You lie somebody down on the table. Okay. Even if we got them in subtalar neutral, Okay, if we just don't mess with the forefoot, let's say we grab the forefoot to get the subtalar neutral yeah. and then hold the hind foot in neutral and let go, 
That foot kind of dangles in space yeah. in a varus position. Yep. Okay. Yep. So we, then the, the mid-tarsal joint axis is this guy right here, the mid-tarsal joint. Yep. So we have a long axis, and it's a really cool axis, okay? The axis of motion here is kind of like when you wring out a towel. Uh -huh. One hand goes one direction, the yep. other hand goes the other direction. Yeah. Like so. Okay. So if we rotate the hind foot this direction and the forefoot this direction, opposite directions, yep. we get a very flat foot. Yep. If we invert the heel and pronate or evert the forefoot, we get a very, very high arch foot. That's a supinated foot, right? Right. Okay. Right. So we got the septal joint neutral, forefoot's hanging out like this. Well, we just grab the thumb or use the thumb and go underneath the fourth and fifth metatarsals and we just dorsiflex to resistance. And all we're doing is bringing the forefoot into its natural position. So by definition, that's kind of a pronatory twist. Yes. You have to do that to lock the mid-tarsal joint. You have to. Uh -huh. That's mechanics 101. So right. he intentionally misled the reader mm. to get this done. Okay, so yeah. you're, yeah. When, we're, when we're walking along, okay, we, we, you, we've talked about the windlass effect a little bit here, uh, yeah. the windlass mechanism. As we're, that, that's actually a late stance. Yeah, it's you know, during the push-off phase, yeah, the dorsiflexion of your toe is what... Heels coming off the floor and right. moving into propulsion. So yeah. when that happens, the hind foot has to supinate. Yeah. Okay. When we do that, yep. we bring that mid-tarsal joint axis up. Yeah. Okay. And now we have to have... We have to get the big toe to the floor. That's our lever for propulsion. Yes. That's how I move forward. So and that's to, pronatory. That's the pronatory yeah. twist of the forefoot. Right. That allows us to plantar flex the first ray. Yeah. Okay, when we plantar flex the first ray, the hallux, the big toe, can dorsiflex. Or the great toe, is it's The great toe. Okay, <laughs> that's your windless effect. Right. The windless right. mechanism. Mm -hmm. When that happens, you draw the heel and the forefoot, forefoot closer, closer together. together. Right. You create a, a high arch. It's a locked structure. It's very stable. That's the screw home mechanism of the foot. That's the most stable position. That's where we want to be. Right. So for him to say, right. well, the pro why would you want to pronate anything? Mm. It's just misleading. And that's that's what the old Karnak shoes used to do. They had that super high midfoot kind of arch that did that. It sort of artificially brought about the windless mechanism, probably to in an attempt to stabilize the foot. Okay, Aaron, I think um, earlier I'd asked you about a, a quick and dirty way for people to figure out how close they are to subtalar neutral if mm. they're not capable of maybe palpating it's the orientation of, of the bones. And, and what I was getting at is if we drop a vertical line from the lateral malleolus, that's your that's your heel bone on the outside of your ankle, we'll call it. Well, that'd be your fibula bone. Yes. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. If we drop a vertical plane straight down from that, if it intersects the outside of the foot and you get a right angle from the ground, that's my understanding is this is the way Paul Check teaches it, that's a quick and dirty way, yes. Like this. To figure out if someone is in subtalar neutral. And may not be we're talking plus or minus a few mils, probably. So he's doing that closed chain. He's doing that weight bearing. Correct. He's doing it while, yes, that's during a movement screen while someone's standing. Yeah, I doubt you're going to get the subtalar neutral that way. Okay. Because okay. earlier I was talking about range of motion in the subtalar joint. Right? Yes. Okay. And the traditional literature, you know, root oriented weed back in the 70s and 80s were the ones that really pioneered that. And their theory was 10 degrees of V version. Yep. 10 uh, to 20 degrees of inversion. Okay. Right. Well, if you isolate the foot and just try to move the heel independently, you're going to get four or five degrees of motion. That's right. it. Okay. So let's say your, your neutral position on the table, open chain, meaning no weight. Yep. Uh, your, your 
neutral position is four degrees of varus. If you stand down and you're vertical. As soon as you stand on it, it's going to change. Well, as soon as you stand, if you go to vertical. Yeah. And you've only got about four degrees of motion there, you're maximally pronated. Right. So the subtalar joint's going to gap medially. Yeah. It's going to compress laterally. So that's the thing. Okay. It's, okay. it's the, like the, the right. traditional model I don't necessarily agree with because you start doing this in your clinic, start just to mobilize the whole foot and yeah. try to independently move that heel. You're not going to get much motion. Yeah. So if they're on the table, say four or five degrees varus, and you can only get you know that much, yeah. and they stand down and they're vertical, that's, that's a compensated foot. Okay. Okay, so compensated, uncompensated. Let's say yeah. your neutral position is minus four. You're in four degrees of varus. If you stand down, you go to vertical, you're compensated because they say a vertical heel is normal. That's traditional literature, mm -hmm. right? Both condyles of the heel yes, are on contacting the, the ground on yeah, the floor. Right. But if you've only got four degrees of motion <clears throat> and you step down and you're vertical, I'm pretty yeah. sure you're, you're maximally pronated. Hmm. So... The subtalar joint neutral, <clears throat> my understanding of it is you should always be assessed non-weight bearing. That's, that's how you find it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, I've seen a few rear foot valguses in my life, open chain, and those were all man-made. Those were due to surgeries. Hmm. Um, now, it can get confusing. Your podiatric people would call this open chain. They do all their assessment open chain like I do. Uh, that's a rear foot varus. Mm -hmm. The orthopedic crowd, they do all their assessments closed chain. So when you see that heel tilted inward or pronated, they call that a rear foot valgus. But they're both saying the same thing. Right. So it gets... The language gets really confusing. It does. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion confusing. about that in bike fitting, about whether a wedge is valgus or varus and, yeah, and the reference points, right? Yeah. I did, my <laughs> easiest way of, of, you know, when I was getting into this was, you know, a varus wedge pushes the foot into varus. That's right. the most basic way of, of Yeah, remembering that's a good basic it. way to remember it. Yeah. Okay. So... All right. I realize you're like me. You get the, the land of misfit toys. You get all the broken children who come to you. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you can't answer this question, but if you took, let's say you took a thousand bike racers and put them in a room, uh -huh. a really big room, a socially distanced room. So we're talking like a big gym. Socially distanced. <clears throat> what? The COVID uh, gym. Yeah. The COVID gym. Yeah. yeah. What, in your opinion, I mean, how many percentage wise or whatever, however you want to describe it, how many of them do you think would actually need custom footbeds? How many could do well with a well-made off-the-shelf footbed? How many would need no footbed at all and could just literally ride away, ride around with just a... <laughs> People get confused on this. The thing that comes in your cycling shoes, not a footbed. Even right. the ones with changeable arches, Yeah, I'm just going to tell you, those are... That's just a little junk. It's a foam insole. It's a foam insole. If you can wad it up in your hand and put it in your pocket, it's not right. going to do much. But even the ones that come with a little changeable arch heights, I mean, we're mm -hmm. talking like... Our, the the largest arch most of those have are maybe maybe fifteen millimeters high. Right. How many people do you see with fifteen millimeter high? And well, need for an in arch the world, world of misfits and broken toys, yeah, I see a lot Some. of them. But but they're not professional cyclists. Right. So um, I think an over the counter prefab device is a great place to start because between thirty and sixty bucks, you can determine or not if that's going to help. If it fixes your problem, great. You fixed it for a lot less right. than a custom orthotic. If that right. doesn't work, then start looking at custom orthotics. How many people need it? Uh, well, you know, pain and performance issues are motivators. Yeah. Uh, so when people have those problems, they start to seek out answers. And, uh, you know, somebody comes in to see me and I can't, I mean, I, try, I kind of think of myself as, okay, I'm, I've got a glass of purified water in front of me. I got to find something wrong with it. Mm. If I look long enough, hmm. I'm going to find something wrong with almost any foot. If, I, if I get as nitpicky as I want. Yeah. Okay, you need orthotics. But, okay, the thing that I found is that what's causing your issues. 
Right. Probably right. not. So I want to be really confident that I can help people. So if they come in and I, I don't think I'm going to be able to help, I'll just tell them, you know, go go see your PT or go see your, your, your myofascial. Go to Colby, get your bike tweaked, you know. Yeah. Um, mm. So I'd say the majority of people, they just walk in my office, not just cyclists, but most people have this forefoot issue, this, this forefoot varus issue. Most orthotics don't post forefoot. Because it takes up room in the shoe, and it makes yep. shoe fitting difficult, and the offices don't want to mess with adjusting it. But I explain to people, you're probably going to have to go buy new shoes, so get ready. Mm. Don't buy anything yet until mm. I get the orthotics in your hands. Take them with. And Maybe some flip-flops. Some flip-flops. Yeah. Then you can't put a footbed. You know what orthotic guys call flip-flops? Mm. The other F word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're so bad. <laughs> of course, I can't keep my wife out of them. So. <laughs> okay, so on that point, you know, when you saw me seven years ago and you said, Okay, pregnant lady feet, try not to do too much barefoot stuff. I have done a lot of work on my foot structure. Uh-huh. I've done, I do, now I hike regularly in Vibram Five Fingers. I walk the dog in them. Mm-hmm. I, I'm barefoot around the house, but not just unconsciously walking. I'm also kind of trying to be conscious of, you know, not just smashing my first metatarsal into the, into the ground mm-hmm. and, you know, walking around in the successively pronated position all the time. I'm trying to strengthen my arch and work on my feet. I, I mean, how do you feel about that? And, um, I'm just looking for a pat on the back here, man. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but no, I mean, I, you know, if an athlete comes to you and their foot is a complete train wreck, total disaster, complete walrus flipper, like <laughs> flipper, and you want to, you want to give them some, okay, like maybe you can speak a bit to the journey of how someone's foot might improve over time. And, and I know you send them to a PT. Do you have to remake footbeds after five years for some people? Because some people. the arches become too high in their footbed that was initially corrective and, you know, putting them in a better position and then their foot gets stronger? Well, not so much because it's too high. So you're, I think you're kind of getting to the whole barefoot running thing, which mm-hmm. is a very passionate thing around here. And I, I learned very quickly that I'm not going to change any minds. Uh, that's fine. Yeah. The people I see that do the best with it are younger. They're smaller in stature. Yeah. The, you know, they're not heavy people. Uh, yeah. they're, they're flexible. Um, try it and just remember, you know, Pain's not normal. Foot pain's not normal. So if you try it and you hurt yourself, you might rethink it. Right. Um, so going through the gait cycle, a lot of people will say, you know, orthotics will make you weaker, dependent. Actually not. A collapsed foot that stresses tissues, elongates tendons, and breaks things down, that's damaging. Mm-hmm. So a good orthotic should actually induce a more normal muscle function, a more normal alignment. So orthotics are not corrective. They're kind of like these glasses I have on. I take them off. I can't read. Okay. When, right. the ortho- when the orthotics are under your feet, that your foot posture will improve. When you take them and off, your overall posture will improve. Your overall foot, ankle, knee, hip, butt, back, and even yep. the Everything. way you carry your head. Yes. That all of that will improve. When you take them off, everything <laughs> comes back. So they're not really corrective. Um, going through the full gait cycle, meaning heel strike to heel strike mm-hmm. on the same side, mm-hmm. uh, bearing weight going through full range of motion, that's the best thing you can do to stay strong. Now, there are a lot of exercises my PT friends will do for, for feet-specific stuff. That's all great. Um, I know there's some PTs here in town that say you can reverse. I mean, so a, a structural forefoot varus, a structural deformity, that's bony alignment. Yeah, That's the way you came out. It's the way you were born. I mean, that's the way you developed. Okay, You're not going to, in my opinion, you're not going to PT your way out of bony alignment. Mm-hmm. Um, now, a, acquired things... I've seen people that have spent a lot of time with physical therapists that have been able to, you know, over the course of months, sometimes longer, uh, you know, 
really improve their overall foot alignment and foot posture. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a constant thing. I mean, it's like I said earlier, you got to make it part of your everyday routine, like yep. brushing your teeth. Most yep. people don't have that kind of dedication, it seems. They're just too busy. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had a lot of people over the years that have ditched their orthotics and done that. And, you know, good for them. That's yep. great. Majority of them end up coming back within a year yeah. or so are back in my office. Yeah. Uh, so okay. for whatever that's worth, um, how do you feel about modern shoes, like pedestrian shoes, everyday shoes? Yeah. So again, if the foot type dictates the shoe, right? Um, so, you know, in the running world, you've got your neutral shoe, your stability shoe, your motion control shoe, your hokas, your hokas. Ugh. There was one hoker I just got my hand on. What was it called? The speed goat. Yep. Something. That's, I think one of their premier models. And that actually had some integrity to it. Mm. Okay, so yeah, but those things are—they're like two inches of foam, right? Well, that's that's to that's me, in my opinion, they're okay. So they, they do work really well for people with, um, let's say, joint problems. Okay, right. so arthritis, the knees, the hips, the back. There's a lot of cush there, mm. and it really softens the the impact of their heel landing on the floor. So for right. that, it really right. helps a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they're built like a marshmallow. I mean, you yes. stand up on them, and you're like. Bouncing up and down. Ooh, I, I, I got to have these. Problem is, two months later, those $150 shoes are shot. Because they are all they just They just compress. Out. Yeah. That foam compresses. I've had a couple people uh, in that Pescavus severely supinated foot type actually fall off of them, if, oh, you, yeah. if, if you will. They fall off that lateral side. It's a platform. It's yeah. like a, you're right. It's like a platform shoe. Mm. Um, so I think that the shoe should provide some cushioning. But it shouldn't be so, so – a good analogy I like to use to tell people is, you know, when they get their orthotics, they got to have the right shoes. So what's stable about lifting weights while standing on your mattress? I Nothing, right? I have this discussion all the time. Yeah. yeah. You push yeah. up with that weight over your head, and your foundation yep. just gives you way. smushes. And but the shoe needs to have some mm -hmm. shock absorption. So I kind of like the, where there's the Nike Air Bladders or Asics and Brooks use the little gel pockets. You know, mm -hmm. that's all good. But if the shoe is so soft that there's no stability – you're going to get, you know, a lot less of the benefit from the orthotic than you would if it was in mm. a much more stable shoe. So the, the, the shoe mm. really, I, mean, I can make the best orthotic in the world. If we put it in the Converse All-Star or a, a Vans skate shoe, yeah, you're going to improve. I mean, I'd rather have you in that with the orthotic than without, but yeah. it's still not ideal. So next week, I'm excited to have Jesse Strenzlin on. She She's big on this topic and mm -hmm. barefoot running. And she's, sure. she's a very big believer in... And that the body should be basically naked and that that's mm -hmm. how it functions best. But of course, recognizing that not everyone's body can handle that. And right. I also am convinced that she is a super freak of elite athletes. <laughs> the, I mean, the, the Jocko Willenke. She, she is. She <laughs> was telling me yeah. the other day about how when the last time she was in Boulder, she ran up Sanitas barefoot. Good grief. In 23 minutes. I mean. Slacker. Right? <laughs> Jeez. She's that's a that's a feat she's no from another intended. planet. So I'm super excited to talk to her about this stuff. Yeah. So anyway, uh, don't go run. Try to run up Sinaitis Mountain in bare no. feet. For the record, that's like a thousand foot climb of like jagged rocks and steps. You know, but the the, the biggest problem I saw people had with the barefoot running when they try it yeah. was the calf muscle and Achilles problems. It wasn't oh I cut my foot on a piece of glass or on a piece of rock. Yeah, but was that a function bruising. of them having calves and Achilles that just were nowhere near ready for that load yep, and they yep, just yep. they just added load way too yep. quickly. So they're 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 chronically yeah. tight right. when you're barefoot running. You know you got to be a forefoot striker, right? So yeah. your calf goes through that uh, you know eccentric contraction 
when your forefoot lands. So you're, you're contracting the muscle at the same yeah. time you're extending the muscle. Yes. And that's a lot of force. And if you're not mm -hmm. flexible enough, it just, that's what I saw the most when it was really kind of coming in into its own, the barefoot well, running movement. And if your context is that you've been on the planet for whatever, 25 years, and you've been wearing shoes with a bunch of heel to toe drop, mm -hmm. that means your Achilles and your calf are super short because you've been standing on that. Yeah. Tight calves run wild around these parts. Right. Um, yep. The, some of the surgeons are doing the, the calf muscle surgery, the, the, where, where they, the, the gastroc recession where they say, well, you can't stretch your way out of this. You know what? Do your best, man. I Just agree. Do some stretching, 100%. do some foam rolling. You know, if you go to your PT and they're giving you a rub down and you're enjoying it, they're taking your money. That stuff's going to hurt. They got to get in there and break that myofascial tissue up and just, yep. it's brutal. And then after that, like I said, part of your everyday routine yeah. before you try surgery, because I've had a handful of people in the last couple of years that have had that, mm. and they're right back where they were. Uh, that's, you know, they, they get that's that. too bad. Well, things are chronically tight. You know, they're right. on, on the bike or they're, they're swimming. And, you, know, you don't change your sports. daily behavior. Surgery's yeah. not going to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a bummer. Yeah. Okay. One last question for you, Aaron. When you, what percentage of your clients would you say after you, you do your initial evaluation, you, you manufacture their footbeds, they come in, you do your final fitting, you make sure they fit in the shoe properly. Maybe mm -hmm. it's a cyclist, maybe it's just a client in general, we'll say, mm -hmm. all of your clients. How, what percentage of, of clients come back to you three, four weeks later, six months later and say, oh, we, we missed a little bit. This one's great, the left one's great, but the right one's a little off. How, how many people my have to adjustment, go that adjustment yeah, my, factor? My adjustment rate's about, okay, let, let me define what I mean as an orthotics person by adjustment rate. Mm. Okay, so we have the model of the foot. We mold the plastic or the material over that model, okay? That's the part that was molded to your foot. Right. The posting, if there is extrinsic posting or metatarsal pads or extensions, those are all things that get added on after the fact. That's yep. not part of your normal geometry. Right. Okay, so traditionally orthotic labs, if, if you do a bad job on your, your cast modifications, and the arch is too high, I would consider that an adjustment. Yep. Okay. So in that aspect, three or four percent. Very low. Percentage. Very, very low because the scanners are so accurate. The, the yeah. 3D editing, the software, the, the CNC machining is so accurate. The most common, I'd say, the most common adjustment I do is shoe fit. Like we mm -hmm. talked about earlier, the shoe and the orthotic aren't talking the same language. So we have to take a little off here, a little off there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Met pads are another big one. Metatarsal yeah. supports those little teardrop shaped button pads you put in there to reduce pressure on the ball of the foot. It's so like when you do foam rolling on your IT band, it, it, it's not comfortable, right? Right. Well, the right. tissue on some people, the bottom of their feet, it's kind of like the IT band. It's super tight. Because they've been in shoes that have compressed those metatarsal heads together, maybe laterally or from the top, all well, the time, right? And well, the nerves get inflamed and irritated. Now you're, you're getting a space in between those, even though it might be better and healthier, a little more circulation, a little more room for everything. Mm -hmm. It can be painful. Well, right? it's... Is that... They're also chronically tight. Like their calf muscle... So when your yeah. calf muscle is tight... The tighter your calf muscle is, the tighter your fascia is going to be, and the more you're going to pronate. So everything's just tight. And it's like when you press that foam roller into your IT band, it, yeah. it sucks. Yeah. You put that vet pad on that fascia in the bottom, it's the same effect. Some people yeah. just don't tolerate them, getting them in the, in the proper place. We've got, got it dialed in pretty pretty well, but met pads. So there's um, maybe a little bit of trial and error with met pads? A little bit, but yeah. I'd say we do pretty good the super majority of the time. Yeah. Um, okay. Morton's extensions yep. can be kind of a, an issue. So somebody needs a lift because they under the big toe because they've got, you know, arthritic big toe or they've got a, a short first 
yeah. metatarsal, yeah. but they're really bony on the bottom. They don't have any tissue under that first metatarsal head. So we, we do the extension, but then we'll cut out the area right under the met heads or the sesamoids, fill it in with a soft compressible foam. Give them a little more. I think there. we had to do that on yours. You have kind of a plantar flex first ray on one side, I think, and we filled it in with a, maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. But anyway, we uh, played with the material a little bit in the posting, and eventually I preferred the firmer okay. material. We went back and forth on that a couple times. Yeah, so shoe fit yeah. inter, 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 shoe fit <clears throat> interface issues are, are the, the most common. I would say over half of my people come in within the first year are getting another set. Yeah. I mean, when this COVID thing lifted, we re, when we reopened in May, uh, I think I had probably 30 people drop off foot models. Yeah. That we've done just, you know, since Christmas or something, you know, they just, they just want another pair because they work. I just want to kind of help our listeners maybe find an actionable way to figure out, let's say they don't live in Boulder. They can't come see you. They maybe have an existing relationship with someone who makes orthotics locally. How do they figure out if this service is going to be someone who falls in line with what your philosophies are or someone they maybe want to avoid? And... Tell us a bit about that. Also, is there a good resource for people to figure this out? I know in bike fitting world, there are a couple of websites that list and categorize bike fitters by their training and credentials. And it's, you know, it's got a map kind of situation. Is there anything like that you can recommend for us? As far as their training and credentials, well, credentials, yes. Uh, but training, no. Years ago, I did diabetic foot care. I got out of it very quickly, but because I didn't enjoy it. Um, there are podorthists. That's all they do. They do diabetic foot care. Right. That's all they want to do. There are retail podorthists, if you will. They work in a running store or a comfort shoe store, and they do these direct mold techniques. That's all they do. Mm-hmm. Um, some podorthists live the good life, and they live in a ski town, and they rent mountain bikes all summer long, and they yep. make ski boot orthotics all winter long, yeah. but that's all they do. Yeah. Uh, so That's the, pretty common for me to have someone come to me and say, oh, yeah, my ski person made me some footbeds for my cycling shoes. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, if you go to an orthotic lab and they're not doing subtailored neutral position casting, ask them why. If they're doing foam impressions, ask them why. Mm. Ask to see samples of their cast work. Yeah. So you can see, I mean, if they've been trained in different intrinsic posting methods, ask them to see more than one type. Do you make a hard plastic orthotic? No, I only make soft orthotics. Okay. That's... Mm. Or I only make soft. I don't make okay. hard. Those those are red flags. You got to know how okay. to make every. It's kind of like a, a classically trained chef. It's like as much as we love Georgia boys. I mean, yep. I don't think you'd call them a chef. You call them a pit master. <laughs> In their world, they are king. Great. But could they make you a lobster bisque? Mm. You know, a traditional, a classically trained chef can. A good orthotic person should be trained in all aspects: soft right. orthotics, hard orthotics, and everything in between. Right. right. Are they doing any three D scanning? Hopefully. If they're not, they're going to be a dinosaur. Are they doing any CNC machining? Hopefully, if they're not, they're going to really soon be phased out. Are they even experimenting with 3D printing? If they're not, they need to be because they're going to be obsolete real quick. I've got two 3D printers, and we're working on them all the time. And this, it's coming quick. Yeah. i got a lot of work done over the, over the lockdown. Yeah. But the new 3D printers that are coming, uh, and I've made several of these, those right now will cost between one hundred and twenty-five dollars to $250,000. But you can take an orthotic lab with 100 employees and take it down to about three. Wow. Maybe five. Yeah. So the industry is changing very quickly. So mm-hmm. if you're not the tip of the spear, you need to. Yeah. Because it's, it's. Better product for the customer, but at the expense of. As long product. as they're not doing all the stuff we talked about earlier. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs>
Is so, there any particular certification or letters after someone's name that people should kind of look well, for so or steer away from? I'm a board certified podorthist. There's two organizations that do certification. There's ABC, American Board for Certification, in orthotics, prosthetics, podorthics. And then there is uh, BOC, Board of Certification. And they do same, orthotics, prosthetics, podorthics. But online, the resource is basically which credential are you looking for and where to find them. Okay. It doesn't really give any aspects of their, their history or their training. Or how or the method they're using or anything right, like that. Yeah. Right. That, yeah. like I said, you have to dig a bit. Okay. Um, and your most of your clinical settings are going to be on the 3D scanning, the non-weight bearing approach. Yeah. More of your retail, uh, shoe store, ski cycle will be more foam box. Yeah. Uh, or, or direct mold. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Disclaimer. Listen up, monkeys. The ramblings on this podcast represent me and me alone. They're not indicative of the thoughts or opinions of Fast Labs or Chris Case or Trevor Connor or anyone else. Also, none of this advice is intended to prescribe or diagnose anything. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on the internet. So, just want to be clear on those points. Thanks for listening.